Oh man, it's not easy to sing another theme song when our theme song is playing. <laughs> when our theme song is awesome. It's as powerful and awesome as it is. And certainly great. better than Bill Conti's iconic theme for Rocky, the film that we are talking about today from 1976, one year before Star Wars. Because that's, I guess, how you rate things. It's, kind of, it's like AD. There's before Star Wars and after Star Wars. It's actually not a bad metric in terms of <laughs> understanding the industry. But <laughs> yeah, Rocky, a year before Star Wars in 1976. When was Jaws? Jaws was, I want to say, 70... I don't know. I mm. wish I did. 75. I'm going to take a random guess, but I think that's wrong. 75. Yes. <laughs> Why didn't I trust myself? You should have. I'm the Rocky of random movie trivia. Uh, I go the distance (laughs) and then get knocked out. (laughs) You lose. TKO, is that what they call it? Uh, It was a split decision in that case. So so you have a knockout. That's when you go down and you're down for 10. You have a TKO, a technical knockout, which is when the judge calls the fight. Is that what, spoiler, happens to Rocky at the end of Rocky? I don't actually know. It's a split decision at the end of Rocky. I understand that Rocky does not win, but I do not understand the mechanics of Rocky not winning. I don't know enough he, about so, boxing. So you go to, so you get, you score points over the course of the fight. And then the judges, you have independent judges and they're the ones tallying points or making judgments about points. And then you come to the end. If you go for the full, however many rounds of fight supposed to last, in this case, 15, go the full 15. And then okay, they're both still standing. Nobody was knocked out. So now it goes to a judge's decision. And sometimes it's really clear. And I, I'm not a big boxing guy, so I may get some of this wrong. But so you pick somebody, like some, somebody like Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. It's a highly technical boxer. A lot of people say Floyd Mayweather makes boxing boring because what, he's, what he did is he mastered the art of scoring points and just staying out of the way and not allowing his opponents to score on him. So he just goes the distance, and then he racks up so many points that he's just sort of undisputed unanimously he won the fight. Yeah, as someone whose ideas of boxing come from Rocky movies and things like this, watching Floyd, which I have done, you know, been at somebody's house for one of those pay-per-view events, incredibly boring. Yeah, yeah, if your idea is Rocky, well, you're just wrong. Like at at any point, a judge is actually going to call you're the the fight's going to get called right well before like these guys that are getting beat up like it's just dangerous it's too dangerous they're going to call the fight they're going to look at them they're going to say this is dangerous you're done you you can't see you've been knocked out you're dizzy you're disoriented this is dangerous you're done right it gets called way quicker than that you don't just go and wail on each other like that the judge will just step in to protect everybody and call the fight in favor of the person who's not getting the crap kicked out of him. Right. But so what Floyd Mayweather Floyd Mayweather does is he just dances around, he scores points. He's very highly technical, very skilled. And then you get to the end of the fight. You've got this other guy who's just really frustrated. Like he may be a big guy, he may be a big swinger. Like he may if he could just find a way to corner or trap Mayweather, maybe able to to knock him out. He just can't do it. He just keeps slipping out. Yeah. And to me yeah. watching something like that is akin to watching nothing. It's just a kind of boring dance between two people. Yeah, you have to actually have some knowledge of boxing and appreciation for you know the technical skill involved to really mm-hmm. appreciate Floyd Mayweather 
if you come to it without any knowledge of that, you just want to see Mike Tyson fight, mm. right? Mike Tyson wants to kill you. Yep. And so Mike Tyson's going to win by trying to kill you. You go watch <laughs> Mike Tyson fights and it's a totally different animal. He's just a beast in the ring who wants to kill the person on the other side. And it's amazing to watch. It is the closest thing that you would get to in any kind of recent memory to a Rocky fight. But even there, it's going to look a lot more sterile and clean. And you're going to wonder if your mind is programmed with Rocky blows, mm-hmm. like your mind, you're going to look at that and think that hit, that hits what it took or whatever. But then you just don't appreciate just how vicious and powerful mm-hmm. a blow to the head from Mike Tyson really was. Yeah, right? I think a lot of that is... Well, real people use defense on like in the Rocky movies. Right. But also. Yeah, it's amazing. Like their hands are down and they just sit there and take blows right. to yeah, the head. It, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what in the world? Uh, the other thing is Hollywood sound design is just so over the top. What we right. think of a punch as sounding like. If I, if I was to walk over and punch Ben right now, it would not make that satisfying, thwacky, loud cantaloupe being hit with a sledgehammer sound that Hollywood has taught us <laughs> to expect. I mean, if you've ever seen a real fight or been part of a real fight, it's just, it doesn't sound all that dramatic. I mean, there, it's, there's still a horrible thud of a fist going into somebody's face that happens, but it's just not the same thing as what mm-hmm. these movies teach us. Right. 1976. It all started here. I don't know why I'm fixated on the year 1970s. Well, this is a very 1976 movie, so I suppose we'll talk about the... Feels very 70s. Feels very 70s, yes. It's almost... Mm -hmm. What I would say is this movie is disguised as a 70s movie, and then by the end, it's actually, I wasn't. I was a happy 80s-style feel-good movie, but I pretended to have a lot of grit and grime. That's not a criticism. I know that already sounds like a criticism. That's not a criticism. I just... This movie is... It's almost anti seventies. It's almost anti seventies. Yeah. yeah, but it feels if your benchmark for the seventies is things like French Connection or Exorcist or like all these real gritty kind of Serpico kind of that's when I think seventies. The conversation, yeah, stuff that's going to end badly. Or even The Godfather to some extent. Mm-hmm. The Godfather is much more glamorous, but it's got that same kind of we're walking through the city and everything's kind of grainy and mm-hmm. everybody's sweating and nobody's pretty sort Uh of feeling in any case speaking of people who aren't pretty we've got me i'm your humble and obedient host we've got ben he's the pastor you know he's a preacher who's a teacher of sanity or nope cinema cinema there you go and uh, ben why don't you introduce in the corner over there and in this corner we have jake mensel the pastor who's a master of cinema the pastor is a master of cinnamon. Gentlemen, we are talking about one of the great pieces of cinematic iconography, one of the, a touchstone. I mean, it's right up there. It's one of the movies, 10 or 20 movies that are just like movies. This is one of them. So you got your Star Wars, you got your Singing in the Rain, you got your Wizard of Oz. I mean, I think Rocky is like that level of Mm -hmm. like, you could put it on a stamp and everybody would know exactly what you're talking about. And what, whether he's running up those steps or whether it's just a guy in the ring, there ain't no other boxing movie that comes close. It's the template. It's the thing. It's Rocky. Mm. We're talking about it, which means we're going to have to have a conversation that I think is a very fun, to, fun conversation to have, although it is often fruitless, which is the conversation like, why this one? What's, what makes this more special than the other things that are like it that would seemingly 
do the same thing. Or is it? I don't know. We'll talk about it. I love Rocky. I think we all love Rocky. Is that fair to say? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should talk more baggage before we get any farther. Oh, I did want to read this Time Magazine quote. The very best way to enjoy Rocky is not to examine it too carefully. Better simply to relax and roll with the Walter Mitty, Cinderella, and what have you notion that the least of us still stands a chance of making it big. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you who didn't like Rocky all that much, the critics. Uh. (laughs) Like, what is this cornball 1940s plot that is telling us we can make something of our lives? What? (laughs) This is the 1970s. We just can't make something of our lives. Everything's going to ruin. It's the end of civilization. You were wrong. The nineteen twenty, the 2020s is the end of civilization. It's always the end of civilization. Hmm. Everybody's like, yay, the 90s. We had Pizza Hut. Guess what? That was the end of civilization back when we were in the 90s. You people don't actually remember the 90s. Yeah. You ever seen the movie The Matrix? Came out in 1999. That movie is like about how civilization ended a couple of years ago. Right, guys? Yep. Anyway, Ben, what is your baggage with Rocky, with boxing, with pugilism, with all this stuff? (laughs) I think all our listeners will know my history with boxing. (laughs) No, there's no history with boxing. There's no real history with Rocky. I mean, I knew that Rocky was a thing. I remember my dad telling me some of the plots of Rocky. I think I saw the final scene of Rocky, not the boxing match, just the part where he's like, Adrian! And I never saw it. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. My dad was a big fan. My mom liked it probably. Never watched it. You never until, watched any Rocky sequels? Until or? this week. No. Have you seen any Creed movies? I saw Creed. Okay. I saw Creed 1. That's the only Rocky franchise movie I've watched. Wow. There you go. I know. Do you I, like any other fighting movies? Yeah. We talked about Warrior. We did talk about Warrior. Warrior's awesome. Warrior is awesome. Martial arts movies became my thing. But do you like the tournament genre of martial arts movies? Because that's not my favorite flavor no, of actually, martial No, actually, no. No, I don't. I've seen crummy parts of those on TV, like Bloodsport, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm-hmm. I've seen TV edits of that stuff. And it's, Jet Li's Fearless. Remember that one? Fearless is okay. It's okay. It's okay. Van Damme is terrible. Mm-hmm. For all that, I think he's actually like a real able kickboxer. Yes. He's no fun to watch on screen. So, no. I don't like the tournament style stuff. Yeah, I don't, I like, usually, I don't yeah. like martial arts and samurai. Yeah, I'd rather it be a life and death kind of situation, not a, like a I'm fighting for my country in a tournament kind of situation. That's just not as exciting for me. Mortal Kombat was never my game, nor was it my movie series. I just like those sorts Why of Why ever not? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> given, the a, given the outstanding quality. Given the outstanding quality, you think I would have made know. an exception, but Yeah. I think of all tournament movies, I like boxing movies the best, or at least I can name many boxing movies that I like. I wish I could name more. I feel like I've seen a couple others, but I i mean, I've seen Cinderella Man, but I think that's a terrible movie. I'm sorry, listener. I know people love that movie. I hate it. I know I've seen another boxing movie or two. Can't bring it to mind. Did you ever say Mark Wahlberg? Ben, I thought you were a huge Ron Howard fan. Yeah. Jake, I try to give that impression. But and I've how do you explain lying. the posters of Russell Crowe all been, over your house? I've been lying. I'm a Russell Crowe fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's how. Master and Commander. Pretty easy to explain, actually. <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to explain. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> These are different people, Jake. I'm not sure if you know this, but Ron Howard and Russell Crowe, very different people. I guess they did make at least they two, made a movie two films to two. Two, yeah. Beautiful Mind and oh, Another movie that yeah. I despise. I hate that movie so much. Okay. Yeah. Insofar as it's taking a true story and mangling it beyond recognition to... F- make an Oscar bait worthy yeah, drama. Put it into a phony mold. Yeah, it's pretty bad. What state? Was that? Yeah, what's what, the hate? What's, what's the hate? Yeah, we love it when they Thanks, do that. Ron Howard. The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg Never is, saw a, that is a one. great boxing movie. Huh. Um, okay. I mean, any boxing movie that's actually about boxing, I think I probably don't like, but maybe there's not that many boxing movies that actually are about boxing. Most about of them are people. like, this is about his personality and his. Some of the Rocky sequels I don't like because they're ju- they really do sort of reduce themselves down to just it's Rocky and it's the other guy and maybe there's a lesson he has to learn. He was too impetuous and his, he thought he could take Clubber Lang. It'd be easy, but what's really sweet about a Rocky movie, as we'll get to, is the Adrian of it all and the environment and the, mm-hmm. it's not just about the movie would be good without the boxing and those are some of my favorite boxing movies. What about either of you seen The Hurricane? Never saw The Hurricane. No, I never saw it. I never saw Ali. That I'd actually like to see because it's Michael Mann. Yeah. Will Smith. My, yeah, but it's Will Smith. My understanding is that he mans it up and really doesn't give you the Ali biopic that most people wanted, at least. I don't know. Have you seen it? I've never seen it because I, it was, yeah. Huh. I didn't think it was going to do justice either to Will Smith's talent or I'll, or certainly Ali. I just think that was bad casting even. Yeah. It told me everything I wanted to know about the movie from the get-go. Like This is Will Smith, happy story, Oscar bait movie. Yep. This is not the Muhammad Ali story. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I really liked Will Smith at the time. And I don't know. I just did not want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. I've stayed far away from it. Yeah, that's fair. I see the, about Ali and especially about the hurricane with Denzel Washington. They just both feel like homework and I don't like homework movies. Yeah. So I'd rather go to a film to be entertained. My history with this stuff is I do like the Rocky series. I think I've seen most of them. I don't know if I've actually ever seen Rocky 2, which I'd like to because it's supposed to be it's good, quite good. It's a spiritual sequel to the first one. Right. In, cool. It's just the next part of the insecure, dummy off the street, every man and his romance with his wife and they're going to get married and... It's going to be a little melodramatic. She's going to go into early labor and then into a coma or whatever. And so there's a little bit of melo- a little more melodrama in it than mm-hmm. than the first one, but it's not it doesn't overplay it too much, I don't think. I think it's pretty tastefully done. Huh. Yeah, all I mean things considered. I'm okay yeah. with whatever melodrama. I just I want the guy that has two turtles named Cuff and Link. I want yeah, that and guy. We get to right. see we get to see Cuff and Link again and they're bigger and he thinks he's going to leverage what happened with Apollo into a TV deal or not a TV deal, but into like commercials and stuff like that and be a folk hero, but he's too stupid to live and he can't read the cards. Right. right? And so they're going to make fun of him and he's going to like be at in bed at night trying to read a book aloud to Adrian and stumbling over the words. And she's going to be encouraging him and he's bought a house and a car and stuff that he can't afford. And now he's in a corner and, he wasn't going to have to fight. And now he's going to have to go work at the meat factory. And then he's going to finally take the fight with Apollo. And then Adrian's going to hate it. And then she's going to go into a coma. And Sounds she's going to come out and tell him to win. And then he's going to double down on his training with Mickey and go into the fight and pull it off. Sounds great. Sounds great. It's awesome. 
Yeah. It's a lot of fun. The nice thing about wives is when they disagree with something you're doing, they go into comas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then you can do what you want, and then they can come out of the comas and give you their That's blessing. That's not what he does. He can't get into it because she's not into it. She's in the coma, so he quits. Right. But I assume at some point she comes out of the coma and is when like, she comes out of the coma, you just need to go be a man. Kind of thing. She comes out of the coma and then she gives him permission in that like goosebump moment where she's like, "Just do one thing for me, uh-huh. win." win. <laughs> and then you get that bell, dong, 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 and then the training music comes on, and then we get Rocky catching the chicken and all that stuff, and then getting in the best shape of his life, and he's gonna go. I did see a pretty funny interview with a trainer an actual boxing trainer who was watching the mickey stuff and was just like no no (laughs) not at all (laughs) nothing (laughs) nope (laughs) no but burgess meredith actually plays a much bigger role in the second film which is really smart yeah because he brings a lot of character just brings a lot of characters to the movie i actually have a problem with burgess meredith in this movie but that'll be a cliffhanger for later I'll just finish up. I'm saving Jake's content, uh, baggage for last because Jake's our resident sports guy. So I'm sure his baggage is exciting. Or maybe it's just, I'm a sports guy and I like Rocky. But we'll find out. I saw Rocky 3. I think of there's two movies that I was introduced to in hotel rooms on TV. One of them was James Bond and the other was Rocky. Two franchises, I guess. So two And two bad 70s entries in those franchises. I think I saw Roger Moore's For Your Eyes Only. In, on a television, in a hotel room, in between doing stuff with my family. And that was my introduction to James Bond. And I was like, James Bond is dumb. And I saw Rocky Three on a television in, at a hotel room with my family. And I was like, oh, Rocky's kind of dumb. So I think I had chips on my shoulder about both those franchises. And then people were like, no, 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 they're great. So I went and watched other entries in those franchises and realized, oh, yeah, they are pretty good. I eventually caught up with, by the time I caught up with Rocky, I think I was in my late teens. I was a cinema loving kid and I knew everything. Like, I I don't know if anyone goes to Rocky not knowing Yo Adrian, not knowing the outcome of the fight. No, they still go to the first Rocky not knowing the outcome of the fight. Just because they think he's going to win. They expect him to win. And even it's sort of ambiguous enough that some people come some people away just think he does thinking that he must have won I, yeah i think that i one reason i never was interested is because i knew he wasn't gonna as a kid i knew he wasn't gonna win mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that had been spoiled for me so i was like eh, oh well i don't want to watch a movie where the fighter doesn't win but he basically he, he wins i mean he does he, win yeah it's not like he wins, that he goes 15 with that. muhammad it's, ali it's not like that's that. right, so all yeah. he wants to do yeah, and all he could absolutely. realistically do or more than he could realistically yeah, do right yeah no it's it's uplifting there, I said it. I made that argument. I'm deep insight into Rocky. I hate boxing. I have a chip on my shoulder about boxing. I don't actually objectively think that there's really anything wrong with it. Actually, we could talk about it. But I knew a lot of people, relatives growing up that were very passive dudes. When I think of boxing, I think of a guy who can't make anything of his life, refuses to get off the couch and love his wife and discipline his kids and all that sort of stuff. And he just gets all his sort of pent up rage about how life has treated him out by watching two fellas hit each other and bleed as a way to passively indulge whatever last urge towards masculinity I have. I mean, that's a common criticism of sports, all sports in general. In general yeah. Certainly fair in some people's lives. Certainly not fair to characterize all sports or all boxing that way. And that's not what I'm intending to do with this podcast. I'm just reporting on my personal history that I bring to boxing. So I think a boxing movie always has to 
overcome a little bit. But they don't usually have a problem with that because basic human empathy puts you in the corner of, no pun intended, of whoever the hero of the movie is. And so you get over it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Plus, I think there's something about movie boxing that feels so cinematic that feels actually a lot different than most, like we were talking about, than the boxing. It, it just feels like a silly movie. It doesn't actually make me think that much about the real boxing that I used to watch, which just seemed, felt kind of ugly and dowdy and just people slowly kind of dancing around and punching each other. Mm-hmm. So I'm not claiming that those are the right prejudices to have, but those are the prejudices that I bring to any boxing movie. And when I eventually caught up with Rocky, though, I did love it and was surprised by how much of a love story it was and how much of a character piece it was and how little there was in the way of any. Is there even a match in between? There's the thing that opens the movie and the thing that ends the movie. And that's it. That's right? it. Yep. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And I think the formula for the sequels was always to have one in the middle. It's like a, he loses one a lot of the times. He'll, there'll be like the second act. No? That's not, not Rocky 2 and that's not Rocky 4. That's Rocky 3. It's Rocky 3. Just Rocky 3. Okay. Rocky 3, I guess, is my Rocky template because that's the one I saw. Uh-huh. All right, Jake, what's your baggage? I grew up with all the Rocky movies and I love them. I think boxing in particular is. So I don't think that a boxing movie actually has to win on the level of boxing or character because boxing is a metaphor, a pretty standard trope metaphor for a man's fight against himself as he looks another man in the eye across the ring. So it's just a, it's a typological mythical type of a story. It's a superhero story. It's a, it's an antihero story. It's a hero's journey type of story. It's on the level of that. And you have to look at any type of boxing movie that way. This is about what makes a man a man. This is about what makes a hero a hero. This is a Spider-Man movie. This is an Indiana Jones movie. This is just more, in in some way more grounded, but in, in some ways less grounded than that. But this is the classic American hero or anti-hero, the guy from the streets who whose chief quality is that he can get knocked down and keep getting back up. It's just that sort of American dream of by grit and determination alone, I can overcome my obstacles, the things that stand between me and success, and I can make it. I can do it. I don't have to win. I just have to not, I just have to keep getting back up again. And it's what we love about Spider-Man or what we love about Indiana Jones or what we love about any number, any John Wayne type of a movie. It's what we love about Rocky. He's just a dude. He's just a dude like you who keeps getting back up and he needs to kick in the pants and he needs some motivation and he, and this is really a, you could say that rock, the first Rocky movie is a rom-com wrapped in boxing Mm. packaging to make it acceptable for guys, but to also have it actually, it's actually a love story and it is. And that's Rocky wins in the end, right? He gets the girl and he proves to himself and to her that he can do it. And that's the win, Mm. but that's what you, that's what's appealing about Rocky. I think that, and I think that's why people keep coming back to boxing and fight movies for that reason. It's always a metaphor for the fight against yourself mm-hmm. and the fight against the, against life. Life's going to beat you down. Can you get back up? Do you have the will and the discipline and the drive to put in the work on the front end? And then when you're in the fight, can you take the blows and can you get back up on your feet? And so it's just a great big metaphor for that sort of thing. And so it doesn't have any grounding in actual boxing. Right. It's never been about that. So I grew up with the Rocky movies, all of them. 
Rocky Four would have been my favorite as a kid, as it's the favorite of any kid, because it's just the unadulterated superhero movie of them all. And we all know what Rocky's going to do in that movie, right? We've got a real villain. Apollo Creed's not the villain. He's a villain, but he's not really... Not really. The mm. villain of the first... The first two two Rocky movies are more complicated than that. And right. it's really Rocky against Rocky. In both cases, it's Rocky against Rocky. And that's what makes them special. And I think really special as movies. They just... I mean, the writing's really good. And the acting's there. And the cast is kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. There's just some real pixie dust that goes into... Mm-hmm. those two movies being what they are. But yes, I love them. They are just a placeholder in my mind for everything. You know, you know, I, I've wondered if Rocky shouldn't be a part of our hero's journey or superhero's journey thing that we've been doing, which we started with Indiana Jones. Right. And then next comes Superman and Batman. I think Rocky fits actually uh, huh. pretty neatly into that, into that mold along with... You talk about Indiana Jones, you talk about John Wayne, you talk about Rocky. I think you have to talk about John Wayne and Indiana Jones and Spider-Man in particular because that's just such a, a uniquely American type mm-hmm. for the what we love in a hero. That's interesting. And so, so, yeah, I think it's just like a defining thing of my childhood, the Rocky movies. I would have probably as a kid thought the first two were kind of boring. Makes sense. Yeah. But they're sweet. And fun, and I think you're actually helping me put my finger on why I never gravitated to these things. Some of it was just not being a sports kid, but I think also it's like the very grounding of this particular hero's journey makes it unrelatable for me a little bit because I'm like, there's one thing I couldn't do, and that's box. Maybe I could get a superpower, I could fall into some nuclear waste, or somebody could give me a billion dollars. Maybe I could crawl across glass if there were terrorists that I needed to save my wife from in the right moment. Those things. Like a diehard or Mm -hmm. what, I mean, while on the face of it, those things are all way more incredible and supernatural half the time there. They actually have more access points. And they give you freedom to just fantasize. Right. Rocky doesn't. Yeah. Rocky's like, well, okay. Even if I had all the grit and determination in the world, I always got out first in dodgeball. Like I've already been defeated in that arena. Now you could say, Nathan, that's not true. You can make something of yourself. Go to the gym, which Jake has said. And I have, and it's been great to see. But also, I just, I'm going to carry the baggage of getting out in dodgeball first for the rest of my life. And so I don't love. We I, or, try to remind you every week. Right. Here <laughs> when you pelt me with, well, with balls. So with my kids, we watch the Rocky movies and they're going to like go grab the jump ropes yeah. and grab the medicine balls and drop down and do some push ups and things like that. It immediately translates to baseball, to soccer, to mm-hmm. whatever else. They don't box. Right. Right. But they just instant connection there for them in their mind. That's of, cool. This is where my fight is. Or mm-hmm. This is a place where I have to put in my work if I want to see results and a place where I can't get beat up and where, hey, if I work hard enough, maybe I can do things that nobody believes I can do. Yeah. Which is absolutely great. Mm-hmm. I think for me and for a lot of nerdy kids out there, it's more like, well, I'm going to grab my lightsaber and play make-believe because that's all I've got. That's all I've got. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Rocky. 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 It's, it's interesting to me that I don't remember either saying we were going to do this movie or rejecting doing this movie before. It's come remember. up multiple times. Has it? And I don't know that we, I wondered if it was on our list or not. I don't think. 
think so. We've talked about doing it, and we've brought it up multiple times. I think so it's I just been... don't know that we've ever actually yeah. pulled the trigger on it. I can just imagine... Like soft rejected. I could imagine me soft rejecting it, just saying, like, well, what are we going to say? It's Rocky. He goes the distance. Like, great. Which would have been a bad thing to do, because I think we're going to have plenty to say, and we already have. Ben, I believe you have some context Nathan. for us, sir. Yeah, about... Pugilism. So just to outline the rest of the podcast, if people yeah. are wondering what we think of Rocky, yeah. four stars. It's great. It's great. The Ben's going to give us this mystery of pugilism? Yeah. But yeah. I'm going to give us the mystery of the movie that yeah. was made. It's got one of those It's got one of those meta, meta stories of Stallone was a struggling, like Stallone had to go the distance in order to get the movie made and he had to be willing to sacrifice. And I shouldn't make fun of it. It actually is a good inspirational story. Yeah. The making of the movie. It's pretty great. But uh, yeah, and then we'll we'll talk through the flick. So, But cool. first, how can we even talk about Rocky without understanding the noble art of pugilism? I, I don't know how we could, but we don't have to. So history of boxing, the origins of boxing, it's not clear exactly entirely when it, boxing started. Some people claim it started in Ethiopia around 6,000 BC, and then it went on to pass to the ancient Egyptians who had a tradition of boxing and fighting you can find sculpture, sculptures and things from the BCs, like, say, 1350 BC. You can find a relief sculpture where you see them boxing. The earliest visual evidence we have is a Sumerian relief carving from the 3rd millennium BC. There's lots of stuff like that. I guess as long as there's been men with testosterone and ego and a desire to excel physically, there's been something like boxing. Or, or well, you, t- can't, you can't actually... There's a whole world of you, what the what I think most cultures have understood is you can't actually train men for war without actually having them spar and fight each other. Yeah, and so having a disciplined sportification of it, you don't know how you're going to react in a situation until you've been in it. And so there's a whole world of people mm-hmm. out there who are like, "Oh man, if that ever came to it, I would totally destroy somebody." You just haven't seen me unleash, but they've never actually they've been never actually fight. fought anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would just get their, they just get destroyed by somebody who knew how to handle themselves. And so, martial arts of various kinds, particular to any individual culture, and boxing is just the martial art, have always been a part of raising boys to be men, raising boys to be able to handle themselves, raising boys to be able to fight, training them for war so that everybody's dangerous and everybody knows how to take a punch and how to give a punch. And it's that sort of, threat of violence that sort of mm-hmm. is real yeah in, in in masculine relationships yeah and as we'll see when i talk a little bit more about ancient greece there were different takes on the utility of boxing and especially like contests like olympic games boxing but all to do with what you're talking about jake just a couple of other tidbits tidbit tidbats tidbats before, <laughs> tidbats before i go there like uh, there's a vase from the isle the island of Crete from 1500 BC that shows guys squaring off with helmets huh. and with these plates strapped to their hands. Wow. Pretty interesting. Um, so like they're hitting each other. They've got metal plates on their hands and then they're hitting. Think like instead of gloves, like metal plates. Yeah, I did see an image of this and it's a picture of an old vase. But I'm not trying to decimate Jake's head. He's wearing some kind He's of He's protective... wearing a helmet, but I think the plates probably <laughs> hurt pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that they were to soften blows it might be to protect your hands maybe maybe but probably they would do a lot of damage and maybe that's what necessitated the helmets i don't know there's 
And there's obviously, there's boxing, right? And then there's just striking. So boxing proper, well, we will get to that. All the ancient but, stuff, I'm picturing two naked guys with bare fists. Is that what we're... What you're, what you're thinking of is Greece in particular, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of versions of this. So the Cretan version is, is maybe semi-naked guys, but they've got helmets on. They've got plates on their hands. You can find this stuff in Eastern cultures, ancient India, a lot of combat sports. There's something called Musti Yuda, which sounds like Muay Thai to read about it, kind of kickboxing. It's the kind of stuff where, like in, in cheesy martial arts movies, guys train until they can break coconuts and stones with their bare hands. Well, this kind of stuff is trees and this stuff kind that. of stuff is documented and it's still done in like Muay Thai to harden yeah. your bones and stuff. Absolutely. Harden I mean it's it's real. And so if guys are gonna fight like this, often you're you're going to kill each other. But apparently, this particular, this Musti Yuda, which I had never heard of, there's still underground illegal matches held in India today, apparently. So, but all that is tidbats. So, ancient Greece, there, there were a bunch of... Con- <laughs> <laughs> well, the tidbats just blew away. <laughs> I like this. This is a new thing, right? You're going to yeah. find a sound effect. Here come the tidbats. <laughs> the tidbats. So there were several kinds of unarmed combat in sports. So there's wrestling, boxing, and pancration, if I'm pronouncing that right. And that was, pancration was the ancient Greek version of UFC. Anything goes, like hit, kick, wrestle, just no biting and gouging, interestingly. But so wrestling was considered the least dangerous and boxing the most dangerous because, well, there's an inscription from the first century BC that says, a boxer's victory is gained in blood. And man, that was true. So 688 BC is when boxing was introduced into the Greek Olympics, the 23rd Olympiad, to be exact. There were no weight categories. Rules were simple. You fight until one of you gives up or you die or you just can't go on. No clinching allowed. And they wound light leather thongs around their hands to protect them. No gloves. But a few hundred years later, these light leather thongs had become hard leather thongs worn over the knuckles so that the leather could cut. They used padded gloves for practice, but for the real thing, they aimed to cut each other's faces up. So just to jump ahead, I'm not really going to leave ancient Greece, but I found this interesting. Ancient Rome would continue the practice of boxing, and they picked up on this idea of, I will wear things on my hands that make it all hurt worse. And turning that up to 11, they developed this glove called the castus. castus. It went up your whole arm, and it had metal studs or spikes embedded in the end pieces on your fists. Some of those matches were for sport, and some of them were, of course, were just between gladiators. Gladiatorial, yeah. Gladiatorial, just so to the death. But you're talking about severe damage with this kind of glove, no matter what, sport or gladiator. Virgil describes these gloves in the Aeneid, and a commentator said this about, he was, a commentator was comparing his poetic description, which were like, ah, maybe Virgil, when he talks about the brutality, it's just being poetic. So he compares it with the engravings and reliefs that we found of this Kestis and people fighting with them, quote, needless to say, the very appearance of these deadly gloves removes any skepticism about another detail Virgil gives, that they were stained with blood and spattered with brains. <laughs> so he's like, oh, Virgil wasn't really exaggerating very much. So you didn't need to wait anyway, back to ancient Greece, you didn't need to wait until Roman times to deform the face of your opponent. You could do it in ancient Greece. So you can find, this is bare knuckle, right? Or leather thong, whatever. You can see on vases, guys punching with their thumbs out, which Jake knows the purpose of that, or you can, you can guess probably. Why punch with your thumbs out? <laughs> to put out each other's eyes. I mean, anyway, this is Greece. There's a quote from a third century sophist named 
Philostratus about the Olympics that kind of helps put you in their world. You come to the Olympic festival itself and to the finest event in Olympia, for right here is the men's Pancration. Erichion, who has died seeking victory, is taking the crown for it. And this Olympic judge is crowning him. Let's look at Erichion's deed before it comes to an end. For he seems to have conquered not his opponent alone, but the whole Greek nation. They shout and jump out of their seats and wave their hands and garments. Some spring into the air, others in ecstasy wrestle the man nearby. Though it is indeed a great thing that he, he already won twice at Olympia, what has just now happened is greater. He has won at the cost of his life and goes to the land of the blessed with the very dust of the struggle. That's like... <laughs> <laughs> the Yay. Greek sporting <laughs> so, so the Greeks, man, you could tell what they thought of their athletes. Like they held them almost in a religious regard. It, it's interesting, though. The Romans, by contrast, held athletes in contempt. Oh, you're like an athlete, you're a gladiator, like eh, you're lower class. So, but Greece, Greece, why? Greek civic life, violence was not tolerated at all. There were severe penalties for assaulting someone. People were like, what? Don't be violent. Like that's a crime. But even those who were opposed to the Olympic sports of boxing, wrestling, pancration at the time, they weren't opposed because they were blood sports. They were opposed because, well, like they thought, for instance, this is a waste of time. You should be developing your brain. You should be developing a trade. Or they were opposed because this is going to give the citizenry at large an example of a useless recreation. It's going to weaken people's minds. You can pull these objections from the famous Greek physician Galen from the philosopher Aristotle, but some Greeks, so back to what Jake was saying earlier about military training, some Greeks were like, oh, there's a military utility. Like these guys boxing, this is good for us. Greek city-states put out their own armies. They weren't like Roman legions, just standing legions. These were like, our armies will come from our citizens. If our citizens don't have some military training and this ideal of bettering yourself and fighting, they won't be as good at it, so this is good. So these are like war games. And then even, but then some guys express a certain ambivalence, like, well, the training you might do to box is good, but actually competing in the games? No, that's not, has nothing to do with being a soldier. That's no good. Don't do that. Train, but don't go compete. That's stupid. So there's, anyway. There's constantly, and the, there always has been fights about this sort of thing and the arguments, yeah. and those arguments still go on today. So people look at divisions with different types of, martial arts, their, pra their street practicality. Yeah. Because everything that's sportified has to have rules that govern it, right? That's right. And that take the edge off of it. So even UFC, which been described earlier as no holds barred, has all kinds of rules and regulations that's that right. prevent certain things that might happen in a street fight. And then you have other people that are like, well, okay, so what we need to do is practice and train no holds barred street fighting. Okay, but then that's really ugly. So do you just practice that on dummies? Okay, but then how, if somebody is trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai, don't you think that that's going to have an impact on an actual street fight? Well, yeah, until a gun's involved or a knife's involved. Well, well don't you think? You have all these kinds uh -huh, right. of arguments about that sort of thing, just as it relates to street fighting. But then the military will use, the Israeli military trains people in Krav Maga, the American mm -hmm. military, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is huge, depending on the branch of the military. Although certain elements of Krav Maga are, like I know lo local law enforcement does, encourages Brazilian jiu-jitsu and definitely has elements of Krav Maga. Mostly the reason that Krav is big is because it has so many hand-to-hand -hand weapon 
uh, type huh. of mm-hmm. scenario. So it's gun defense and knife defense mm-hmm. elements to it, which is why it works its way into so many different elements of things that don't see its w- way into the UFC ring right, or whatever. But right. these types of arguments and disagreements are just not new. They're ancient arguments right. and disagreements about the relative use of the sportification of things and how useful or how far useful it is to go. Um, Mm -hmm. Even in your training in terms of sparring and that sort of thing. Right. To actually develop your ability to act in the field. Right. Should you go until your face is all disfigured and your ears are cauliflowered? Well, the Greeks thought so. I mean, the Olympics, that's what they did. And uh, the Greeks loved competition. They loved it. That was a big factor in the popularity of these games. They love competition. They love winning, especially, which is a distinction, actually. Like I, I read about, I don't remember what African tribe, but I think this practice still goes on. They have a boxing practice. Like they love it. They train for it. They do all this competition. No one remembers who the winners are the next year. They don't care. So those are actually different things. To love competition and to love winning are different, but Greeks yeah. love both. <laughs> they loved individual honor and glory, which... I mean, if you read any Homer, you know that. Right. Right. They love it. And as a bonus, all social classes could take part in these sports. So kind of some upward mobility there. Like you can be it's kid a democratized type of thing. Right. Which has always been part of the American view of sports. Yes, mm. absolutely. Right. Interesting all the comparisons we could draw. So much of the beauty of American sport is its ability to be a venue for rags to riches stories, right? Like Yes. So many rags to riches stories just on transcending your class or station on pure ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I.e. Rocky, i.e. other, I mean. That's what all the movies are about. But that's what all, but you don't have to watch a movie. You just have to turn on ESPN. Yes. And whatever game you're watching is going to have. Yeah. Depending on how big the sport is. So if it's football, you might have five of those stories that get told in the course of a game. Right? That's right. About any number of players out there on the field. When this guy, the first thing he did when he got drafted was buy his mama house and get his uncle out of poverty and or whatever else type of a. And if you're a social critic or a civics philosopher or whatever, it's easy to find fodder for what is incredibly problematic and difficult and weird and yep. unfortunate in some cases about those kinds of stories and those kinds of dynamics. Well, yeah, absolutely. And along with it, there's all kinds of, it's definitely. You're a person who's developed one thing about yourself. And so here's millions yeah. of dollars. You haven't actually had to develop anything else about and, yourself. Mm-hmm. And so then there are all the statistics of all the NFL players who have made millions of dollars and end up in poverty right back where they started by the time it's all said and done. And all the different ways the NFL go puts their rookies through classes and requires them to learn basic financial skills and money management and the ways it doesn't matter. Yeah. The way that it is a tool for transcending their background or their class, but all of those, many of those people end up the, they've are committed to developing their whole selves. So they develop a, their reading and their studying and they're developing business sense and they're make building the right relationships and surrounding themselves with the right people. And, mm-hmm. It's just all kinds of factors that go in and stories about yeah, how it all works and if it works. and Right. Yeah. Well, to make a long sh- story short, I, this Christianity rose and the Roman Empire declined. Boxing is entertainment. 
the client too. It's kind of <laughs> knocked out of the ring, but <laughs> but it still continued to be a thing in parts of Italy. Although it doesn't really resurface as a, like a big thing until you get centuries later, like a long time later. So we come to London, 1681, when the first formal boxing bout was recorded, and it's sometime around here that the word boxing is first used to describe this thing. This is bare knuckle boxing or prize fighting. It's brutal. Sometimes ends in the death of the boxer, though that's not the goal. This is not a gladiator match. I'm picturing Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. Dude, like that, you that absolutely kind of should. Thing. That's right. That's right. And you could you could do all kinds of things. You could gouge eyes. You could bite, headbutt, choke. You could throw. There's a manual about boxing from the time that instructs readers in doing these very things to win matches. So it's almost until closer. A, until you get to Marcus of Queensbury. Yeah, I'm coming to him. Yeah, I'm coming to him. So it's almost closer, like when it starts here in London, to the Pancration, Pancration of ancient Greece in its way. Um, and it's illegal, but it's very popular. Prize fighter named James Fig becomes a celebrity for 15 years. He's acclaimed champion of England, even though boxing is illegal. People call him the champion of England. Six feet tall, 185 pounds. He's an expert at wrestling, swordplay, fighting with cudgels. Said to have lost only one match because he was sick. As of 1954, he's part of Ring Magazine's Boxing Hall of Fame. So his box, boxing just, it's becoming more popular slash notorious. Boxers start to introduce regulations. So to make it less likely that boxers would die and just make the sport generally more socially acceptable. So Figs, James Figg's student is a famous prize fighter named Jack Broughton. I think that's how you pronounce it. Came up with the Broughton Rules in 1743. So this gives you things like, hey, you can drop to one knee in order to end the round. And that gives you 30 seconds, 30 second break till the start of the next round. Of course, if you did that, you were a sissy. So no one wanted to do that. But whatever. I mean, Broughton also promoted a kind of a soft glove called a muffler. And his rules kind of served to take away wrestling style techniques. <laughs> Focus more on fists. London prize ring rules in 1838 updated Broughton's rules. They get us a little closer to modern boxing. They say they were like, none of that biting, no gouging, no kicking a guy while he's down. And hey, if you do have spikes sticking out of your boots, they can only be three-eighths of an inch at most. What are we, barbarians? So just like <laughs> ancient Greece, there's still no limit on rounds. You just go until you're done. And as boxing goes along, it slowly begins to attract the interest of the British upper class. I mean, it's still pretty low class. And it's big money and it's popular. You want the upper class interested if you can. And it becomes more or less the British natural sport, national sport. Still illegal. And it doesn't cross the Atlantic to America that much at this point. And plus, more than likely, a decent boxer in America is going to be an immigrant from Ireland. Someone who brought a British love of boxing with him. And then what Jake mentioned in 1867, the famous Marquis of Queensbury rules emerge to guide boxing matches, make them just more respectable. And these rules are sponsored by, you'll never guess, the Marquis of Queensbury. Uh, I was going to go Earl, <laughs> Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> you were going to be wrong. He was a nobleman named John Douglas. He liked watching boxing. He was this outspoken atheist, misanthrope, known for being a nasty and unpleasant fellow, greatly disliked by high society. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, his son Alfred was the lover of Oscar Wilde. Which was oh, a scandal weird. that enraged the Marquis. So and he drove was the him. persecutor of. He Oscar destroyed Wilde, Wilde yeah. through a court case that ruined his health, reputation, put him in prison. Putting him in prison ruined his health, led to his eventual death. So that's that, the Marquis of. Although to be fair, I believe Wilde was the one that chose to see that court case through to its bitter end. Wilde 
sued the Marquess for libel, I think it was. And then... That's when he actually got... That's when he got his butt handed to him. Yep. Yep. And so, the Marquess, the right honorable patron of the sweet science of bruising, as boxing has been nicknamed. The sweet science of bruising. (laughs) The sweet science of bruising. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And these rules, his rules that he sponsored, um, did make it less brutal. No more shoe spikes, period. Rounds are three minutes each. You always have to use gloves. If they break during the match, you have to replace them. If a guy is down for 10 seconds, he's KO'd. He loses. So that's pretty modern. And a lot of old school boxers were like, these rules are for sissies. But they caught on anyhow. And then boxing started to lose ground. This is like the mid-late 1800s. Christian church has always opposed boxing, and it's coming into a period of greater influence in England. And boxing, like I keep saying, it was still illegal anyway. And it's associated with drinking and gambling, which is shocking. I don't get it. And very often, the spectators of boxing matches will have giant brawls based on the outcome of the match. So boxing is just like this social, it's just awful. I'm it's just like gonna, a social I'm picturing some, some prostitutes and some venereal disease. I don't know why some... you pictured that. <laughs> I don't know. I, just, I often am. <laughs> <laughs> so, and at the same time, boxing starts to become really popular in America. A big part of that was the famous boxer, John Sullivan. You might have heard his name. Irish-born, of course. So he becomes a heavyweight champ, famous guy, won't go into his story. And eventually, in America, various states are like, this boxing has a lot of money-making value. Boxing has a lot of, like, hero-making value. And state by state, they begin to legalize it. New York was the first in 1896. And then by the time of World War I, boxing is, like, being used as a training tool for the war. And so, like ancient Greece, we thought, hey, maybe this helps us train our guys for war. Maybe it's good for men in our society. So the state starts regulating it, giving it greater social acceptability. I couldn't find the date when it was legalized in England. Clearly it was. I'm assuming a similar kind of thing happened. And that's what I've got. We won't go into modern boxing and famous guys, Ali and Tyson and whoever. Cool. I mean, is there anything else, is there anything you want to add, Jake, or anything about what those guys did? Or they obviously brought commercial respectability and. No, I don't think so. It's a fun history. Yeah. It's fun to read about. Pretty interesting. I mean, you do wonder, boxing as we have it now is like semi-Christianized. It's like, it's not going to be like ancient Greece, where it's a virtue to die. Right. Right. (laughs) If if you can win. It's like, no, that's bad. And I was thinking about my own associations with boxing. Like, on the one hand, I think of it in terms of it builds character, it builds skill. It's honorable. And on the other hand, I think of it like it's distasteful. It's a blood sport. I found I had both of those in my brain. Yeah. And watching Rocky, which I really enjoyed, I definitely had some ambivalence. I mean, I watch a lot of martial arts movies where guys kill each other. Mm-hmm. But boxing is a, is a national sport. Well, maybe I should just go ahead and give my full baggage instead of giving half of my baggage because half of my baggage was maybe not as helpful as my full baggage. So my dad comes from Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is a famously like Philadelphia is portrayed in this movie kind of town, just corrupt, nasty, full of gangsters. My dad described his childhood as as being very similar to the character in Goodfellas who looks out the window and sees these gangsters having a better <laughs> life while he's taking beatings from his dad and stuff like that and eventually just decides to, or Goodwill Hunting would actually be another touchstone for my dad's childhood where Matt Damon and his pals are just going, driving around drinking, seeing a guy from the other side of town, from the wrong side of town, jumping out of their car, beating the snot out of him, and then jumping back into their car. 
that sort of thing. And so my dad had a love-hate relationship with boxing, just like he had a love-hate relationship with violence in general. He'd seen a lot of violence on the streets, a whole lot of it, and sort of thug, gangster violence. And he hated all that stuff. He couldn't watch even kind of what we would think of as innocuous movies where if there was too much punching in a movie, my dad would be out on it. He didn't like to see a fist connect with somebody's face and blood come out of their nose or something, even if it was like an Indiana Jones or something like that. Like that sort of thing bothered him because mm-hmm. he'd, he'd just seen too much of it in real life. But then he really liked boxing. He loved to watch boxing. And it was just something that I always had to sort of reckon with. I think I looked down on it maybe wrongly. I mean, it just felt like one of those weird hypocritical things, like we're not allowed to watch violent movies, but we're always watching. There's always boxing on Mm -hmm. in our house. And maybe there was some of that. But I think if my dad was here, I'd be interested to hear what account he would give of himself. I think what he might say is that is exactly what you've kind of been saying is that this is actually a way to channel this stuff. It's every man's got it. We could pretend it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. or we could find ways of controlling it, channeling it. And I think my dad would be actually more on the side though, of Ben saying "Eh, it's blood. Like I think what my dad, where my dad would ultimately land is it's all bad. It's all sin nature. There's nothing. Maybe it's necessary that we find a way of dealing with it. But what we're always doing is dealing with a necessary evil violence in and of itself, warfare, men making war, all this stuff necessary evil but evil my dad was a pacifist my dad was an old hippie my dad was at woodstock i mean my dad just is of that generation Hmm. so boxing was a way for him to process all of this stuff and i still i my dad's going on 80 years old we don't talk much i don't really understand exactly where he was at with all this stuff i just know he had a abhorrence of bloodletting and a fixation on bloodletting and it was seemed like a weird contradiction, but since then I've realized that's a type. Those people are out there. And I think what I'm hearing that Jake would say is, we're not talking necessary evil here. We're talking, I don't. Well, why don't I just yeah instead of I speculating with Jake. Jake, the man's right here. <laughs> <laughs> so, are we talking about these types of movies? Or are we talking about boxing and martial arts in general? I think we're talking about all of it. I think my dad yeah. would have seen yeah. all of it as. One thing. I think he would have seen all violence as necessary evil. Like when we fight a war, there's no such thing (laughs) as a war that's not evil. Maybe sometimes Hitler's just got to be taken out. Maybe boxing is a way to channel some of these aggressions in a way that kind of is semi-helpful for society. Maybe like my dad wouldn't say we need to just get rid of all this stuff. But I mean, I don't really know what he would say. I just know that practically speaking, he loved to watch boxing. But it was all, we have to feel guilty about it. Even boxing, like, it's something that we should feel sort of bad about, even if we consider it to be a necessary sort of thing. Just like I mean, war. these are big sort of yeah, cosmological yeah, questions, yeah, yeah, exactly. right? Like, is warfare a part of a function of the fall, or is warfare something Adam should have engaged in to prevent the fall, mm-hmm. right? It's a big cosmological sort of question. Was Adam responsible for defeating the serpent before anything ever happened? Mm-hmm. Should Adam have crushed the serpent's head in the garden? But I don't think that if we look through scripture, God trains men's hands for war. Yeah. And Abraham was a warrior and David was a warrior. 
And those things are celebrated without any any apparent need to feel bad about that. Can I, here, I'll be a little bit of devil's advocating, and I'll say, well, sure, Jake. And David was a man after God's own heart, but also David did not get the privilege of building the temple because his hands had shed much blood. Yeah, God I'm, gave that privilege to his son whose hands didn't shed blood. Yeah, but also God wanted him to shed the blood. Yeah, I, I'm just saying there's certain consequences attached. That story is a fascinating story. Yeah, the duh, there are consequences. Yeah, but it's you, that doesn't contradict the fact that God trains his hands for war. God commands him to go mm-hmm. slaughter people. And he gets mm-hmm. into and his biggest trouble when he's mm-hmm. not out. Doing, doing his it. job. When he's not out doing his job. And Sorry, the Bible people. goes out of its way to cast frame it that way. Yep. And God regularly condemns the people for not slaughtering the women and the children of his enemies. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, like, the righteous, it was not righteous that Saul allowed even the sheep or the goats to survive mm-hmm. when he raised the cities. It was unrighteous of Saul yeah. to have. And so, yeah, there's something horrible about it all. But that just because there's something horrible about it doesn't mean that there's anything about it that David or Saul should feel guilty about. It just means that the shedding of blood is an awful thing. Right. Well, it's okay. interesting that you come from a police family. I, I do, My yeah. brother was a Marine and then a police officer and a police detective. He's no longer in those that field, but he was in that field for a long time. And one thing that I learned to really resent on his behalf is this whole liberal bent is kind of the saving private Ryan thing. We are going to make a whole movie praising these guys, but also it's going to be like, wasn't it awful? And there's no glory in war and there's no heroes in war. And there's heroes. Like, of course, Tom Hanks is a hero, but man, the fact that he had to do this. And, and I just hate that. Like the idea that my brother has to go to Afghanistan he has to be on the streets of the town that he was in. He has to do these horrible things. And then he's expected to bear the burden of feeling bad about it. Like, and can't possibly feel mm-hmm. bad enough about it to satisfy anybody. I'm glad you interrupted me before I said a bad word. Like, take a long walk in the sticks. How dare you? And then they despise. Like, uh-huh. the, there's a culture of camaraderie, of joy, and it can become sick. I mean, my brother told yeah. me about the Marines who came back with brains on their boots and it was like funny and they were cool and every and wasn't it great that they had indulged their bloodlust by killing women, children, whatever. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but not much. The people that were just wicked, psychotic, and were there went into these fields because they wanted to indulge their bloodlust. My brother is like, yeah, those people exist and they're bad and you have to stay away from them. And it's very easy to get swept up in that as a way of dealing with your own conflicted feelings about right. these things. But that being said, there is a joy in battle. There is a camaraderie. There is there are jokes. And the fact that we would want to take that away from our young men, that they're not allowed to, that not only are we requiring this difficult thing of them, but they're supposed to be mopey about it in order to prove some kind of point for all the rest of us. It's like, take a long walk. All right. Sticks. Yeah. And that's... I'm not arguing against you. I think it, no, I think no. you, you I press th- on things that should be pressed on when yeah. you bring up the David story. And sure. David was celebrated. Mm -hmm. And rightly celebrated for killing his tens, ten thousands. And there's something awful about it, but we don't ever see David in the Psalm. Like we have all these Psalms of David wrestling with all of his demons, all of his sins, all of his difficulties, Mm -hmm. all of his anxieties. He's never bothered in the Psalms about 
carrying some kind of guilt for obliterating God, his enemies or the enemies of God. Yeah. He's troubled by the existence of his enemies, and he prays that God would strengthen his hands and to go destroy them. Remarkably <laughs> yeah. specific, uh, violent scenarios that could befall them <laughs> uh-huh. and their children. Yeah, that's right. And he imag- and he prays that God would. Yeah, he prays that God would dash the heads of their little ones against the rocks without any pangs of conscience. Right? I mean, I think where I would agree with the point that you're representing, Ben, or move in that direction is it is easy to fall into bloodlust. It is. Mm-hmm. There's a reason maybe a guy retires from being your state executioner after doing it for 10 years. You know, there's a reason there's a reason my brother's not in that field anymore and some of it was just you know, he wanted different opportunities, whatever. There were but you know, there were things that were harder for him to compartmentalize and things that were easier for him to compartmentalize and, and that's true right. and that's not to make light right. of that or to but right. it, but I praise you know, him some... for doing it. I'm also mm-hmm. glad he's not. He doesn't have to do some of that anymore. And mm-hmm. I think it did take a toll on his psyche and on his soul. And... It takes a toll on lots of those guys. And but some of that is the schizophrenic nature that our culture approaches it with and tells them they have to approach it with. And go out, protect, serve, and defend us, and then we will punish you for it. That's really hard for men to bear up under. And there used to be part of. And this is, again, why I think boxing actually as a sport, or at least as a type, is really, even if you don't like the sportification of it, just taking it on mythological terms, on typological terms, what you have are two men looking each other in the eye with dignity and respect for each other. Mm-hmm. And who come away from the fight with, dig- with a sense of respect for each other, that they've looked into their own soul and they look- they've looked into the soul of another man. And... So there used to be, and you can read about this sort of thing, right? There are two basic ways that you uh, that you approach warfare, and the fact that you are killing other men made in the image of God. And one is you follow an honor code that shows some level of dignity and respect for the life that you're taking, right, in service of a higher cause, or and so there's an elevation actually of what happens on the battlefield. And it's why you would have this sort of like the the Brits were scandalized by American guerrilla warfare because it was dishonorable. Because what you did was you lined up, you looked each other in the eye and you fired. And the idea that you would come from behind was scandalous. But it was so much a part of this idea of we face each other man to man with dignity and respect and God determines the outcome, was like ingrained in certain aspects of how people talked about or wrote about this. Now everything's different on the actual battlefield. Mm -hmm. We all understand that. We all understand that. But the alternative is to dehumanize your enemy and to make him into a nothing, into a a cockroach or a rat, to to be exterminated or destroyed. As we have degenerated in our view of humanity and as everything is less about good and evil and more about us versus them, We've lost, I think, part of our ability to to see war with any kind of actual dignity because nothing is good and evil. Nothing is black and white, and it's all us and them, and therefore, so it's all othering, and so it's all dehumanizing. And so in that sense, it is all something that you feel icky about. And a lot of these guys, these soldiers that go over, they've been sold this idea that they're fighting for freedom and they're fighting to protect their families and all sorts of things. And then they get disillusioned 
they wonder what it is they were actually fighting for in the first place and who was getting paid and who was profiting while their brothers got blown up by, by, mm-hmm. it's just, it's all messy. But the beauty of a combat sport, like any sport, especially when it's for young men and for training, is it is that it, it encapsulates all of those elements of looking our opponent in the eye and it's like, okay, there are rules, there is honor, there is dignity, there's me versus you, there's the me versus you of it all, but there's also the, the me versus me of it all. And it's all right, it's all right there. And so any type of blood sport or any type of combat sport can have all of those elements. Just like I said, Mike Tyson wasn't engaged in any kind of honor fighting. Mm-hmm. And he would say that now. He would say that now. He would say, and he, he, there's a lot of really wonderful Mike Tyson quotes about fighting and about the art of fighting and about, there's a lot of wisdom in that man, actually. And people make fun of him and say that he's stupid, but I think the boxing ring taught him a lot of life wisdom that a lot of people could stand to benefit from. But a young Mike Tyson was in the ring to just kill his opponent. He was in there to just destroy somebody. Hmm. And that's certainly present. And that is one of the things, if you're going to watch boxing or UFC, that you have to check yourself on. Like, oh, no, this is boring. Oh, what you want to see is a gladiator fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not right. There's something wrong with that, Mm -hmm. too. Well, the process that Ben just described, if you want to call it the Christianizing of, what do you call it? The science of bruising. The sweet science (laughs) of bruising. If you want to call it what we actually did. I think is with both arm with both warfare and play warfare is we design we actually designed systems to weed the psychopaths out because yes any kind of system that of course the army is going to attract people who just want to watch someone's head explode and know that they pulled the trigger that made that happen yeah of and course they can get away with it and they could get away with it and mm-hmm. if it's a brown person or a person with different skin color than them so much the better easier to get your jollies from making their head explode and of course boxing is going to attract somebody who just wants to i think those things both at their best actually weren't designed for those people though and so you said you have all the vietnam stories of well we all just ended up those were the people that succeeded well okay that's because something was wrong with vietnam that's because something was wrong with us even being there there you have a much bigger problem there it's not just actually this whole sort of Colonel Kurtz thing of we all just need to be Mike Tyson or we can't make our way in the ring. We all just need to be willing to rip our opponents' babies out of their wombs or we're mm-hmm. we're not. I mean, I think there's a way to talk about a man doing what it takes, standing up, being willing to not give an inch. And also, there are also well, we've talked about this before, and we've talked about it in terms of Michael Jordan, a mm-hmm. man who won by simply unleashing the beast within himself Mm -hmm. and it's amazing what he did but he's also a sad shell of a guy with his little cigar and his bourbon or whatever Mm -hmm. his drink of choice is well have we talked enough about the history and philosophy of pugilism do people have enough there that they can finally begin to understand our discussion of the film rocky what do you guys think i think so I think it is worth saying that there's a case to be made that, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this at this point, but we were just talking off mic about it. Yeah. And I agree with you that there's a case to be made that certain of these sports, like boxing, like like football, are actually intrinsically 
immoral at this point. Maybe they weren't always this way, but the more that we know about the permanent damage that is often done Mm -hmm. in the name of entertainment. Yeah. That's very different than, it's just a different conversation. Yeah. I mean, there is something Hunger Gamesy about a bunch of wealthy people sweeping up the poorest of the poor and saying, hey, permanently damage your body for lots of money. If you're really, really good at it, then lots of money. Yeah. Be crippled in your 50s and 60s. Die young. Be crippled in your 40s and 50s. Have permanent brain damage. Die young. But that'll be so much better because your 20s and 30s, you'll be ultra rich and famous. Yep. That is an argument we could have. And I realize there's nuance in both directions we could bring to it. But worth saying. Yep. All right. Let's talk about the f- making of the film Rocky, which is that was all of your pugilistic That's right, man. expertise. That's it. Excellent. So the story of Rocky is one of the most famous Hollywood inspirational stories in and of itself, even apart from the movie being a Hollywood inspirational story. Sylvester Stallone was a young, hungry, down on his luck actor who had been in some kind of indie dramas that had done okay. He was the bad guy in some exploitation films like Death Race 2000, if people know that one, where you get points by hitting pedestrians. Sly Stallone is the villain in that film, in that work of cinematic art. But he has not made a name for himself. When our story begins in 1975, he's young, he's hungry, he's running out of options, he's getting older. Whatever will he do? Well, what he did is he went and saw Muhammad Ali fight Chuck Werner. And just in case some person from under a rock is talking, is, is what can you say, Muhammad Ali, Jake? The greatest, argue, arguably, but arguably the greatest boxer of all time. Yes, and a outside personality. A, certainly, yeah, the most famous... Definitely who Apollo Creed is based on. Right. Not a super flattering portrait of Muhammad Ali in this first movie, at least. The character of Apollo grows and changes through the series. But if all we had, if this movie had never had any sequels, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, part of Ali's strategy was to just use a lot of outside-the-ring talk to draw attention to himself, make his fights big, and increase the price size of them. And he was really good at that sort of thing. And making himself the bad guy in the public image so people would come and hope to see him get destroyed, and then he'd go and destroy his opponents. Right. A, a savvy manipulator of his public image, a savvy manipulator of race relations, you could say. I mean, he was all of all that. All kinds of it. Fascinating figure. <laughs> but in any case, Ali actually did pull a stunt very similar to what Apollo Creed pulls in this movie, which when I watch Rocky, I just think it feels so fantastical. But it's not. Sometimes real life actually is as strange as the inspirational movies that we make about mm-hmm. it. So Muhammad Ali gives a random dude a chance. His name is not Chuck Werner. I had a typo in my notes here. His name was Chuck Wepner. Mm-hmm. And he was he's known as the Bayan Bleeder. He comes from New Jersey. And he's just this dude, this second-rate kind of rocky S dude. Wasn't famous for anything. But Ali's going to give him a shot. And nobody expects it to go longer than three rounds at the most. But famously, it goes on and on and in the ninth Wepner actually knocked Ali down and Ali says it was because he was standing on his foot or something like that like Ali was never gonna just <laughs> give it to him because <laughs> that's not 
Ali's style at all. But Weppner, Ali broke Weppner's nose, opened up his eyes, similar to what happens to Rocky. But Weppner just keeps going and going and going, lasts 15 rounds, and then gets a technical knockout, which is, which is again, what? <clears throat> Don't want to be sure I get it right. There's a technical knockout with 19 seconds left in round 15. I know there's a movie based on this guy I haven't seen. Right, and the movie Shrek. was cast as the true story that Rocky <laughs> was bait. It was very Rocky, right, right. Rocky bait. Yeah. It, a TKO, a technical knockout's when the referee stops the fight. Right. Right, so he just jumps into the middle and says, a fighter cannot safely continue because this fighter cannot safely continue and he loses. And so it's a technical knockout. It's just he stops in for the safety of the boxer who's getting pummeled and mm-hmm. says, this is over, this is done. And the referee has the ability to make that call right? at any point in any fight. People argue about if certain refs are paid off to call a fight at the first opportunity. Right. You know, if they jump in too soon and too late, often when a ref does this, it'll be debated. And usually you'll have boxers and trainers like saying like all you guys who think that this was called early don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how dangerous the situation actually was, but Hmm. that's what a TKO is. Right. So this is slightly different than what happens in Rocky because Rocky actually does make it all the way through as we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast nine hours ago. And then the judges just decided against him. Basically he hasn't scored as many points. Am I understanding that? Yep. Correctly. Yep. But it's actually not, it's actually pretty close in Rocky. Is it somewhat close? Do they say? Yeah. So you hear the the ringmaster say it was a split decision. That's right. And then when you pick up, Rocky 2 actually begins with you watching the final round of that fight. Mm-hmm. And then it keeps going after that. So you have them clinching and Apollo saying, ain't going to be a rematch. And Rocky saying, don't want one. And then they end up at the hospital later. And Apollo's already running his mouth about how he needs a rematch because people are saying Rocky actually won the fight. It was fixed. Apollo had paid off the judges or whatever. Like he couldn't afford to lose no matter what happened. And so Apollo's sort of like dogged throughout all of Rocky too mm-hmm. with these think pieces in the paper. We always see him. He's like reading letters from people <laughs> or reading think pieces. <laughs> and he's just like really angry that people think not only did Rocky go the distance, but there are people out there with the audacity to say that he didn't win that fight. And he doesn't think he won that fight. He won, but he didn't win. Right. Right. He like it was a big loss for Apollo Creed that it went 15, that it went the full distance in the first place and that he didn't and that there's any question whatsoever. Right. And so he's like trying to find ways to get Rocky to fight, to increase the purse, to try to bully and shame Rocky into fighting whatever it takes right so he can clear his name so that's so there we're already getting into a little bit of fantasy because of course ali wepner didn't do quite as well against ali as rocky does against creed and of course there was no ali wasn't gonna be <laughs> let himself be talked into a rematch or anything like that but anyway sylvester stallone is there for this thing this freak occurrence he and, but by the way apparently so wikipedia tells me that there's photographic evidence that Webner did step on Ali's foot. Well, there you go. <laughs> and anyway, I, don't, I haven't looked into this. This is just a Wikipedia claim. But. Got it. Got a <laughs> sting like a butterfly. No, float like float a butterfly. Like a butterfly. Sting, sting like a bee. Yeah, like you a don't want to float like a. You don't want to sting like a butterfly. Float like a bee. Or, you float yeah. like a bee. 
I guess they both float. All right. So, so Stallone is this struggling actor and writer, and he's like, yes, this is the story. This is my story, actually, because I'm this struggling guy who wants to go the distance, but I can't write. And so it would be very easy for me to write a screenplay about a young, struggling guy who wants to break into the movies. But Stallone is savvy enough to know that nobody's going to empathize with that story. I mean, Stallone has said in an interview since then, like, Rocky is my story, but I made it boxing instead of screenwriting and acting because people care about boxing and it's got the typology like jake was saying like no nobody's gonna be like oh yes he's got to become a screenwriter you know <laughs> in order to <laughs> be an actor he's got to write the movie that right yeah. i mean you can tell hollywood stories but in any way I, I think this is really savvy i think this is, this is people misunderstand the old adage write what you know and they think well okay nathan podcasts so he can only write stories about podcasting that's not what that adage properly understood means what it means is I can write about being a wizard, but when I write about wizard, I, being a wizard, I need to take my understanding of relationships, of dynamics, of things that I've experienced. Play, I have to pour your myself own struggles, into it. Your own background, your own experience, your right. own observations of other people's struggles and successes. And-, and in doing so, I can lend authenticity to a story about a wizard or a fisherman or whatever I want. It's not that I have to understand each and every field perfectly but this is exactly what stallone does so brilliantly in the screenplay for rocky and never for people you know stallone monosyllabic rambo actor people don't realize he writes these things he wrote the rambos he wrote the rockies he's a good writer um mm-hmm. i think he gets yeah. lazy at a certain point in his career we can talk about the second the middle half of the last we talk about where stallone's career goes from here mm-hmm. but he is a good writer and the things that people tend to remember even from the rambo series are these monologues about vietnam and stuff that rambo gives and they're quite good stallone is just he's a good writer it's just yeah especially for himself but and he's a good writer not just people think of oh i just think that there's so much that are perfect about the first two rocky movies in terms of blending comedy and drama and not pushing into bathos or anything but just kind of keeping it chill yeah just like very tastefully done very smart very clever Rocky II is a little bit, everything's slightly more amped up, but still very restrained and intelligent with a lot of elbow grease in it. It got a lot more laughs out of like my wife, mm-hmm. just like audible laughs than the first one, mm. but a lot of just sweet cuteness and it's really smart. Yeah. He really knows how to write the love stuff. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. at a certain point, he starts writing to his own mythological image to the idea of Stallone instead of the idea of who this charming character Rocky is. And that's too bad. And the same thing happened with the Rambo series. You just see in, you have a character, a flesh and blood character who's interesting and three-dimensional and also a super warrior. And then at a certain point, Stallone just becomes famous as the grunting muscle man figure of machismo in the 80s. And he kind of plays to that. And it's a, yeah. as, as much as we all love Rocky Four and the kind of the anti-Russia, the cheese ball, 80s machismo of it all, mm-hmm. there's a world where we actually get a great series of movies about Rocky Balboa, this guy. The that guy who in. can barely read, the guy who feels stupid, the guy who, when he takes his wife somewhere to propose to her, ends up taking her to a zoo. I have seen that scene. And that's a very charming little It's incredibly scene. charming, yeah. incredibly sweet, and really interesting as a, even as a writing choice, 
given the setup for that in the first movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Where the dude's like, ah, you should take her to the zoo. I hear retards love the zoo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But then you get like, even, you know, okay, it's the tiger. And the tiger is sort of thematic, symbolic thing right. for Rocky throughout all of his movies. And so it's just. Yeah, he's good. It's a lot of really smart stuff. I, I When the first Rocky movie came out, Roger Ebert said, we found our new Marlon Brando. And it's just so silly. Roger Ebert actually revised his review. And now if you read that review, if you look it up on the internet or you find it in one of his later collections of essays, it will say something like, yes, in 1976, I really did think we'd find, we found our new Brando. Like he acknowledges, uh, okay, <laughs> I guess he wasn't our new Brando. <laughs> but there's a world where he plausibly is. And he always plausibly I was. So. He's a great actor and he's a great writer, at least for himself. And Rambo and Rocky are actually, in their conception and in their original couple films, very different characters. R- R- Rocky is not the monosyllabic kind of Schwarzenegger-ish guy that we think of when we think of Stallone. You know, when, right. what's his face? When Weird Al and UHF, <laughs> the parody movie, when he does a, a Rambo parody and he's got the muscle suit and he's just <laughs> grunting and shooting guys and blowing spitting up people. Spitting bullets out of his mouth. Spitting bullets. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what we think of when, when someone says Stallone. That's the association that we have with it. But neither... Rocky or nor Rambo are actually like that in their first films. Anyway, the story is that he wrote this script in three days. Originally, it was much darker. Mickey was a horrible racist. And at the end, Rocky throws the fight after he figures out he doesn't want to be a part of this corrupt money. So so it's much more sort of self-aggrandizing. Like he could have beat Apollo, but he just decided like. More 70s. Yeah, more 70s. He, Stallone writes a 70s movie. but. He has the good sense to not end up with a, a 70s movie. And I, I, unlike many cases that we talk about, I don't think it's because some ultimately wise producer said, hey, let's just do the audience. I think it's because everybody just agreed. What we actually have here is a, call it cornball if you will, but we have an inspirational story. and That's the movie. That's the movie. And so Stallone has done this film with Henry Winkler, the Fonz from Happy Days. Hey, that guy, you know, huh. everybody remember the Fonz? Yep. From Fon- Fonsley. Fonsley, yeah. I don't remember that fondly. I think the whole no, thing I was stupid. Either. But Winkler manages to sell Ron the- Howard had to be made by something more than the Andy Griffith show. Yeah, guys. exactly. Our real Cinderella man had to <laughs> work his way in the dust heap of... <laughs> anyway, Winkler sells the script yep. for Stallone's a nobody. He's got this script that's pretty good. Winkler is his friend. Winkler sells the script on his behalf to ABC, the television network. And the ABC goons are like, all right, we'll make a TV movie out of this. This feels like some cornball TV material. So we're going to do it. We're going to rewrite it. And we're going to get somebody else to star in it. And Winkler (coughs) immediately regrets reaching out on behalf of his friend, he's just like, you guys are going to rewrite that. The only thing that makes this script interesting is the specificity, the cuff and link of it all, like the love story. Like you can't, if all you bought was the concept of a boxer triumphing, then you didn't really buy anything. Like you're buying a world, you're buying a character and you're idiots to, and this happens in Hollywood all the time where somebody writes something original and specific to them and from the heart and from experience. And then they're like, a story about a cop beating a robber? Great, we'll pay you a we'll million a, dollars. We'll make a hundred billion. Yeah, and it's so frustrating. And then they do. They own this script, though. They could do whatever they want with it. They have all the power. Stallone doesn't have anything on them. But Winkler goes to bat for him, 
and basically uses his capital as the Fonz. Like, hey, I'm the biggest thing on TV. I have literally not jumped the shark yet. And I am so powerful. You must do what I say if you want Fonzie in your Happy Days show, which both of those things were huge. And so give back my friend his script. And so they do. And disaster is averted. Then Stallone goes to a couple producers. He shops it around town. Nobody's interested in, you know, the classic story. George Lucas is probably shopping Star Wars around town at the exact same time, and nobody's interested. But he finds these producers named Irvin Winkler, no relation to Henry, and Robert Chardoff, who work for United Artists. And they are successful and powerful enough producers that at a certain price point, they can just green light a project. They don't actually have to go and talk to the big money guys as long as comes in under a certain amount and so they're just like we like this and they offer stallone three hundred fifty thousand dollars for the rights to the screenplay and here's the true light real life rocky inspirational story stallone has 106 dollars in his bank account he has no car he is quite literally trying to sell his dog because he cannot afford to feed both himself and his dog at the time and they're like we want to give you 300, uh, $350,000 $350, for this script so that we can get Robert Redford or whoever the big guy is to star in it. And Stallone says, absolutely not. The only way I'm parting with this script is if I get to star in it. I wrote this for me. I'm the one who knows how to do it. I'm the one who can bring the actual conviction, who can actually play this character. It, it just it has to be me. and. I'm sure a lot of people have made those sorts of stands and we don't know who they are because <laughs> nothing happened. They walked. They walked. And I'm okay. sure. And then uh, obviously. I was about to make your life, kid. Okay. I've heard those stories where I'm thoroughly frustrated with the artist. Like, hey, dude, you could have compromised and made something pretty cool, but instead your integrity got nothing made and made you no money. But in any case, Stallone holds out and they agree that okay, this script is good enough. We want to do it, but we're going to pay you scale. We're not going to pay you anything more, a dollar more than the minimum that we pay. And you're going to come on not just as an actor, but as a screenwriter. You're going to rewrite this sucker for free. So yeah, well, and we're going to make the movie itself for way less money. They had wanted to do it for $2 million with Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill, one of the big guys from the time. But if Stallone's going to star in it, then we're going to cut the budget in half. We're going to do it for $1 million. And the big money guys also tell the little money guys, if you go a dollar over the million, then you're paying for it. Like we're not spending a cent, not a penny more than a million dollars on this thing. And both of these producers end up mortgaging their houses to get the film done, to get, a, get an additional $100,000 or so. <laughs> But there is also a funny story of the big money guy needing to give a final green light on it, and they send him a they send him a film that Stallone was in, and it's just so that he can make sure. Okay, do I, do we really like this guy? And he's not sure. He's not sure, and he says like, "Who? Okay, which one's Stallone?" And somebody points out the wrong guy, some guy that we've never heard of, and he's <laughs> like, "Oh, that guy's cool. Yeah, I'll, we can have him in a movie." And it's not until the movie's like at the premiere that he's like, what? And he's really angry <laughs> that he apparently signed off on this thing <laughs> based on some random guy 
in another movie. I don't know if that's <laughs> a true story or not, but that's one of those stories. So, yeah, they make the movie. They make it extremely low budget. Stallone has to rewrite the script for no money and makes scale on it. But obviously, it's a rocky story. He goes the distance. He makes a career off makes of a it. career out of it. Although, interestingly, with Stallone, what happened was a little bit like Rocky II. He had trouble making a career out of this. Like he starred in a bunch of things that just weren't hitting. And then he was like, okay. got to go back to the Rocky. Let well. me do Rocky. Yeah, let me do Rocky. Let me do yeah. another round. And that's when his career really started to take off. And then he got Rambo and these franchises. And he really just, to my, for my money, he feels like a guy that wanted to experiment, wanted to be interesting, and then had success with it with the original Rocky, but then found that he was sent packing every time he tried to be creative enough that he was just like, okay, fine. You guys want Rambo 3, Rambo 4, Rambo Last Blood, Lambo First Blood, Rocky 6. You, you I'll just make money off yeah, of it. Yeah. You want me to just say cheese ball? You want me to just be Schwarzenegger? Great. And I think I've always thought it's a little sad. I love Schwarzenegger, but Schwarzenegger, when you see him in a movie, he's doing the best possible thing that he can with his talent. Like Schwarzenegger hmm. was born to be Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Stallone's always slumming a little bit. He's always a little smarter than the material. When you get to the sort of Judge Dredd, whatever, just his bad kind of action. Lots of, crim- lots of crummy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. I mean, I know a lot of people like that one. I, I never, I, I don't I, get it. I really think his acting in Rocky two is just, I think it's peak Stallone. I think it's unparalleled. Hmm. Like, really like he plays such like you feel there's something a little there's enough suave about rocky in the first rocky movie that you can see roger ebert saying this is our brando right the next brando in rocky 2 he's such he leans harder into the actual character of rocky right. than he does even in rocky 1 hmm. like the character as written and conceived hmm. and i think it's such a sellout bang up performance right it's like you cannot conceive you think they found some bum on the street to play himself and held his hand through the movie that's what it feels like yeah and it's really cool i think it's i think it's really excellent there's obviously a lot of if you watch stallone in interviews he's actually a very charming guy yeah there's a lot of there's obviously a lot of stallone in rocky oh yeah the kind of just uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit of bravado a little bit of machismo but also charm and a quirky sense of humor and just the joy of sort of being alive Mm -hmm. and it's like stallone had two modes he could play that guy or he could play like the stoic action guy and it's just too bad he did so many stoic characters because he's actually a great motor mouth he's a great kind of almost robert downey jr type just the guy i mean never he's never going to be as classy as robert downey jr but just like the guy with the patter (coughs) yeah he's actually so weird he's actually really good at and again most people just think he does his thing So that is the big story for Rocky. There's a couple other things we should talk about. John Avildsen, as as Ben was talking about. The great. The great director of Rocky and The Great Kid, I'm reading here, from 1985. (laughs) And nothing else. Nobody cares about the rest of this guy's career. Uh, Karate Kid 2? <laughs> Karate Nathan? Kid 2, uh, yes. Have you ever heard of Karate Kid 3, Nathan? Yep. little movie? You might have heard of it. I've heard of Rocky 5 as well. <laughs> this guy feels like a good filmmaker. I mean, he brings real atmosphere. He's re- re- Both Karate Kid and Rocky really have a sense of place. Like You really feel the Philadelphia of Rocky, and you really feel the California of 
karate kid and he's good with actors and he's good with actors he's good with making the fight scenes talk about character yeah both rocky and karate could have that special something where you're like it doesn't matter if it's a slow karate match of high school kids in the 80s it doesn't matter like he he's captures what makes this exciting yeah we're telling a story here yeah <laughs> and we're in suspense he's got and we're it. drawn into it yeah he makes very absorbing films but oh, two of them two of them yeah <laughs> well he worked his way up in the 60s doing <laughs> industrial films for places like ibm and then broke into the industry with a film called turn to love from or no i'm sorry turn on to love 1969 which if you can imagine from that title it was kind of a nudie hippie exploitation film about a bored housewife who grows to goes to greenwich village to smoke pot and have sex so not a really auspicious way to break into the industry but he did it and then he did a bunch of lame movies. I'm familiar with some of them. I mean, he did like a George C. Scott uh, international thriller. He did some stuff that kind of sounds good on paper. But really, the things that he did that broke through were Rocky and the Karate Kid. And he his his obituary said, Rocky direct, ro- director of Rocky and Karate Kid dies. Hmm. So that's John Alvaldson. I mean, we can maybe talk about a little bit more about what he brings to this movie as we go. He was obviously made for this movie, but yeah. nothing else really that distinguishes him. Some lame attempts in the 90s to kind of do the formula again. Yeah. Talia Shire, who plays so wonderfully, Adrian is, of course, we've talked about her before. She's poor, battered little Connie in The Godfather. She has a real line in kind of women with domineering mm-hmm. men in their lives. And and so she said she's the sister of Francis Ford Coppola. She was born Talia Rose Coppola. She which would make her if for anyone who's keeping doing the math, the aunt of Nicolas Cage and Sophia Coppola and the mother of Jason <laughs> Schwartzman. That part I did not know. Yeah, she is uh Wild. she is Hollywood royalty. I mean, she's part of the family. She was cast her breakout role was Connie in The Godfather. She gets a much. She gets an even better part as Connie, though, in The Godfather too. She, she's <laughs> got a really small part, but a really potent, a potent thing. That yeah, her storyline is great in that movie, and one of the saddest and darkest of them in its way. But basically, in the Godfather script and in the novel, Connie is described as the most beautiful woman in the world. She's the mafia princess that everybody wants to marry, and so Francis Ford. Coppola in a very sweet way is like, well, who's the most beautiful woman in? Oh, my sister, of course. And so she does Connie in Godfather in 72 and then part Godfather part two in 74 and then beats out people like Susan Sarandon for Rocky, beats out a bunch of big names because they're just for, for the sort of unflattering reason that you'd expect, which is we can't hire Susan Sarandon. That ruined, like, we need a woman that's plausibly mousy and past her prime and <laughs> not beautiful and she's till she takes off those glasses mm-hmm. but man this is one of the only castings i'll just go ahead and give my take right here like i hate the cliche of like you always have these total babes who are wearing glasses and they're supposed to be ugly and then they take off the glasses <laughs> and it's like yep you're still a babe didn't fool me but she actually really does a nice transformation in this movie of being the kind of person you wouldn't notice in the first half and then actually being very beautiful as she blossoms. Yeah, she's not pretty until she is. Yeah. Which is until she's drawn out and left. Yeah, which is yeah, which is sweet. Yeah. And works awesome. works well for the movie. And this is she did a billion of the Rocky sequels. She's got apparently, as Jake says, good material to play in part two. She gets a little sidelined yeah. after that. Yeah. I was just looking at the sort of ratings 
Rocky Two is the highest fan rated Rocky film. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people. Say and it's it favorite. is not nearly as well. It's like only sixty five percent critic. I think it's that's because of the melodrama and the retread of it all. But I think in terms of just we're going to come back to this material and. Siskel and Ebert loved it. Those guys were always hip for the most part. They were behind the times on some things, but mostly they were hip. And they, they're just like, this is the, the way they describe it is the story didn't really finish. We didn't know. It's more like the Godfather part two, where it's just, you're picking up. It's like, it's not another story. It's like Rocky one and Rocky two actually become yeah. the story. Uh-huh. It's the, yeah, uh-huh. it's a complete story. And it's, I think it's, I think it, it really works well with the first one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, w- I would have watched it in preparation for this podcast, but I didn't watch Rocky 1 with my wife, and so I didn't want to ask her to watch Rocky 2, and I didn't feel like rewatching Rocky with her. But so, Well, that's too bad. Amanda really... Yeah, maybe I'll just say, hey, babe, you want to watch Rocky 2? And she'll say, of course. Yes, sir. <laughs> anyway, Talia Shire, she kind of has her place in history as in two of the most popular franchises of all time and two of the most iconic films of all time. Her if it's i'm glad she doesn't just have godfather because all she really gets to do in that movie is get beat up but uh, (laughs) as i laugh a few other just go through a couple of these other people got burt young who plays polly Mm -hmm. the thing about burt young is he always played guys like polly (laughs) played a really good polly (laughs) i mean i don't know what else to say about him burt young played burt young burt young played burt young he's good at that kind of wanted burt young in your film you could have him yep you could have a price and he'd play that that part (laughs) yeah and he was in lots of rocky movies and i'm sure enjoyed the paychecks and he's good burgess meredith i think most people if you're like me you know him as the penguin and the adam west oh okay batman quack 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 all that sort of thing (laughs) With his cigarette holder and his... Actually, probably most people know him from Rocky. I don't know. Yeah, but, if you're like me, you know him from Rocky. And also, he was the penguin in that thing you watched <laughs> at your grandparents' house? Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Wow, fun. <laughs> well, he's one of those guys that... <laughs> yeah. He's he, also in the Grumpy Old Men movies. Yes, and the uh, sex-starved octogenarian. And dude. makes a bunch of funny sex jokes. Yep, there you go. I haven't seen him. He's like, is one of those things where he, it's like Alec Guinness. Like Alec Guinness did not want to be remembered for Star Wars. He was an actor's actor. He loved acting. He loved being in things that challenged him. And then everyone's like, yay, Obi-Wan. And Burgess Meredith, same story. Everybody remembers Rocky. Everybody, if you're cool like me, you remember Batman. This guy was an actor's actor. He's part of the actor's studio in New York, the Method School, the school that gave us Brando and all these guys. Like this guy was a stage sort of actor and in his prime he played all the shakespearean heroes and i was in lear yeah (laughs) exactly look up if you want to know what jake's referencing and you don't look up bob hoskins super mario interview um it's quite amazing yeah bob hoskins well i won't spoil it for you just look it up so yeah burgess meredith he's the dude he but fondly remembered for his roles and these things we need to talk about study cam and we need to talk about bill conti bill conti being the musician let's talk about study cam first so if people don't know what study cam is it's a device that keeps the camera balanced and not sort of at the mercy of the camera operators jittery fingers it's a way to not do shaky cam but also not have the camera attached to a dolly or a crane or a tripod. So if you wanted to have the camera move and you wanted to do smooth shots before the steady cam was invented, 
you could have a dolly, which is just like the camera's on wheels, basically, and there's some dudes pushing it. You could have a crane, which is like the camera's attached to a crane. There's always a crane shot at the end of the movie as we pull out. Or you could do somebody's just holding it, but cameras, especially back then, were big and bulky, and you'd get really shaky, obvious camera movements. And so there's all kinds of things that we take for granted now that you couldn't do back then in terms of filming action, in terms of having the camera follow people or go people. A perfect example is in this movie where they, the camera just smoothly follows Rocky up the stairs and in the most iconic shot that actually is only possible because they had this invention called the Steadicam. And this is one of the movies that introduced it. So this guy named Garrett Brown invented it and basically went to Hollywood to say, hey, I've invented this thing. Does anybody want to pay me money and use it? And Hollywood was like, yeah, cool. We'll do that. That sounds great. We would love to be able to do the kind of stately, precise camera shots that we thought we could only do with a crane, but in closer and more confined spaces and without a ton of hassle. We'd love to be able to eventually do long action scenes where we follow John Wick or whoever up a flight of stairs and we never cut, you know, all this, all the kind of 1970, all the kind of the in vogue now, long, no cuts kind of thing. That's all predicated on having a camera that can, can achieve that, can achieve that by not being bound to a tripod. And so Study cam is just something we take for granted, but they couldn't do any of that. Just imagine the hassle of having a big, bulky film camera, and you've got to lay track for it, and you've got to make sure that that track doesn't show up in the in any of your scenes as you move. So yeah, it's part of the choreography is where your tracks laid and how people move and how it's shot. Right, and you begin to understand why all movies before the 1970s are just a little bit more calm. Singing in the rain, it's like. Gene Kelly's doing the dancing. The camera's not doing the dancing. The camera's just kind of slowly. Although sometimes it does some some dance. Like, yeah, like you have the one in the studio where it's sweeping back and forth. So I'm I mean I'm I'm obviously generalizing wildly, especially in silent films. Before they <clears throat> when they didn't have to worry about the sound element of it, there's some very dynamic camera work and like a Fritz Lang, the German expressionists. Like, but there is a period in kind of the 40s and 50s where camera work does get more languid and it's because we have big bulky cameras and unless we want to do shaky cam which wasn't really in vogue until the french discovered it in Mm -hmm. the 1960s we're going to have to be anchored to a tripod one way or another and so it's just that's the whole style that you think of as the hollywood style of you know john ford or something like that the camera's always got to be anchored to something and so you just don't have, you never see John Wayne, like the camera follows him as he moves through <laughs> doors and into right. different. Right, exactly. And so he's on a set. Right. Yeah. Where the cameras can be on dollies or on, right. they can move. And it's not that we can't, like Hitchcock's famous for these really elaborate dolly shots where we start at the top of the stairs and then Ingrid Bergman and Notorious, she's got to like get the key you know it's the MacGuffin, and so she grabs the key and then the camera's going to go all the way down the stairs and it's good but hitchcock had the money and the resources and the time and the expertise to set up these really elaborate things most people working on a budget without the prestige mm-hmm. or the clout of hitchcock just weren't going to be able to do those kinds of things but the steady cam opens up a whole world of those kinds of things and garrett brown the inventor of the city cam had shot a promo reel where he literally filmed his girlfriend running up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, what's now known as the Rocky Staircase. And they actually saw that promo reel and were like, oh, we're going to do that. We should have Rocky do that. And so he found himself 
he filmed his girlfriend doing it one week and then a couple months later he's doing the same thing with young sylvester stallone who's about to become the biggest thing in the world oh man i'm sorry i i keep processing as we go back through rocky processing it through the lens of rocky too and people with the staircase scene what they actually remember is the staircase scene in rocky 2 where he's being followed by all the people yeah a crowd and people like to people don't remember how well earned that is actually it's the kind and of how scene well that earned shows it up is. like in a naked gun movie or like right because it's, it's stupid and it's cheesy that people would be following Rocky, but it's actually really, really well earned in Rocky too, even by the setup of him just doing all this stuff on his own by himself. Nobody knows and nobody cares. Hmm. Sorry. No, I think your proselytization has won at least one covert. I plan to watch Rocky. I, I do. Two I as do for soon sure. as possible. So. There, there are a couple other movies we could talk about that helped invent the study cam, but for our purposes and for the purposes of most people, Rocky was really popularized. There's so much in this movie that's achieved <laughs> through it. It's just a, <clears throat> kind of a fun film nerd thing to go back and look at what they're doing and how they're able to do it with the study cam. Most of the box, the big boxing match is Garrett Brown in the ring with the guys, which you just can't, couldn't do. I mean, if you think about The Quiet Man, if you think about how that we don't have a proper boxing scene in that movie exactly. But if you think about how a John Ford punching scene is done, as opposed to the really visceral in the ring field, which we take for granted now, but which Rocky was yeah. really the first. And they just did that by rehearsing, choreographing, and remembering the entire round of any given round in the fight. And then the actors would just do it. And uh, Garrett Brown would, did one pass where he was in the arena with them and then one where he was doing it from the vantage point of the audience and that's most of the fight that you see and it's really effective and it's i mean it's so ubiquitous now in the way we film these things but and then they introduce more slow-mo right in rocky 2 yeah yeah yeah. apparently what's his face michael jordan found some fun ways to spice it up in this new creed 3 movie but i don't think any of us have seen it not uh, yet. I don't know. He kept doing the round. Maybe it was just. I'm building up to it. That's why. You're, that's why we're doing through. this. I'm going <laughs> through them all. We're building up to it. Yeah, I still got a secret too. So they filmed this movie in 29 days. I wanted to make sure and get that in. But let's talk about Bill Conti and gonna fly now because that is the other thing about this movie. Uh, I think I have the tiger. Arguably, the 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 real Rocky song that people remember. I mean, everybody remembers gonna fly now. Yeah, but. If I say Rocky song, I think probably someone will say I have the tiger first, maybe? Well, because they don't necessarily know gonna, the name Gonna Fly Now, because right. they don't asso- even associate that with lyrics so much as the melody. Right. I have the I, tiger has lyrics. Yeah, it's survival. I have right? the tiger. I didn't know I have the tiger was a Rocky song. I have the tiger's Rocky, but it's not till Rocky 4. Rocky 3 is what I or see Rocky Yeah, it's Rocky 3. I, I remember that yeah, much. Yeah, I just, I didn't even know that. <clears throat> yeah. Cool. Well, it's sort of like... Oh, we've got to take some of these themes and pull them together. And he's lost the eye of the tiger. Then that's going to be Apollo's theme in his training of Rocky, right? Because Mickey's dead. Isn't that that how it goes? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. I always forget when Mickey bites it. So Bill Conti is a workman for the studio. He actually is ghostwriting spaghetti western scores and <laughs> things like that. So he's like, they're like, we bought a cheesy Italian movie. Can you write some new music for it for no credit? And he's doing things like that. And this is another like inspirational success story. The studio is like, hey, we have no money. How about we pay you 25000 as a package deal? So you are going to get $25,000, Bill Conti, this guy that no one's heard of. 
You are going to compose the score for that much. You are going to hire your own orchestra out of that money. You're going to hire your singers. Anything you want to do to produce this score, you're going to pay for out of that money. And then whatever is left, you can keep. And so I think he ended up making about 15K off of it. But Poor guy. he's doing just fine because <laughs> he did produce a little song called, which you may not know, not, not know, the title is Gonna Fly Now. I think most of the lyrics are Gonna Fly Now also. I flying think High Now. Flying High Now. It's got 30 words, <laughs> famously. And it went gold, billboard number one, and obviously is ubiquitous, the Philadelphia Eagles and other sports teams and sporting events, and we all know It's on it. every workout pregame playlist of all time and right. it has been since 1976 <laughs> so so iconic trump used it and conti in 2016 and conti was like did i get paid and they were like yes and he was like cool i am happy for anyone to use my music so long as they pay me so, and people were like ah conti's ruining the world but yeah he became a very successful film <laughs> writer and did some james bond themes if anybody remembers spy who loved me what is the famous carly song? nobody does it better one of the most famous james bond love song credit songs that's bill conti i don't really love i mean it's very 70s this guy a little corny to my ear but Mm -hmm. you can't you cannot deny the potency of yeah yeah. If I'm going to go with a cheesy synth score, I'll take Vangelis and Chariots of Fire as far as inspirational sports synth goes, personally. But I'm sort of but I can't do it. That, that's too cheesy for me. This one, I'm here for. You're here for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm here great. for both of them. I don't know that I can even... How does Chariots of Fire go? Dun, 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 dun. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay, It is cheesy, <laughs> and I hate every time it's used in like a commercial or something, but it is actually fairly potent in the movie when you see yeah it's great dorky yeah. british guys with their dorky british sport yeah. it's yeah. great yeah but when you hear that ding 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 and then you get your bump bump out about like how many of the blood gets flowing mm-hmm. yeah it's, 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 one, it's one of the great scores i mean go. it's star wars the james bond theme what rocky they're they all they're all in the conversation right so <laughs> after all that of course the actual inspirational part of this inspirational story is that this was the highest grossing film of 1976 it was nominated for best picture and one it was nominated for best director and one for john alvaldson one of those interesting times where a guy that is not really going to go on to do anything great and that isn't remembered all that fondly one just based on the popularity of one thing stallone gets a nomination talia shire gets a nomination burgess meredith of course his part was written to get a nomination and it gets a nomination burt young is nominated it's possible that young and Meredith split the vote. Your Rocky fans couldn't decide who to vote for for supporting actor, so neither one of them got it. Screenplay, Stallone gets a nomination for the screenplay. Gonna Fly Now, of course, is nominated, which I'm interested. I'm just going to click on what was the best song that won. I'm really interested to know hmm. what beat that and whether we even could hum it. So 1960, no, 1970. Six. Evergreen. Barbara Streisand. Love theme from A Star is Born. Could any of you guys hum? No. Evergreen by Babs. Nope. I mean, I could hum half of the other things. The Ave Satani choral thing from The Omen and The Pink Panther. Pink Panther. Well, maybe it's not the Pink Panther theme. Anyway, Rocky cleaned up. 
biggest film of 1976 the critical intelligentsia was a little snotty about the whole thing like hey this is not an original story why didn't you have him die of cancer at the end so it would be original or something like why what he's going to defeat his demons and win the thing that he set out to do what kind of claptrap are you telling the american people you should tell them that they suck and will be defeated and nothing will go their way. That will be a successful formula for filmmaking. But it was huge. It was iconic. It made a bunch of people's careers. And it is one of those rare classic movies that most people have seen. Most people know the references. Most people know it even if they haven't seen it. But I feel like most people have also just seen it. And it's part of the pantheon. It is Rocky. That is the story of Rocky. Sometimes when you come to a movie like that, you're like, oh, well, that doesn't really hold up anymore now that a billion people and their brothers have done the same thing. What do you guys think about Rocky and how'd you like it and how do you think it holds up and what are your overall thoughts on this sucker? Uh, it's great. Seeing it for the first time. I was sorry I hadn't seen it before. Just really fun, really sweet. I kept expecting all kinds of dumb things to happen in the plot, like, oh, this dumb, petty criminal boss is going to get his hooks into Rocky and there's going to be some dumb subplot about this it guy. It never goes wrong. It's just a good movie. And instead, it's actually sweet. It's like, actually, even that guy actually likes Rocky and wants yeah, him to succeed. Yeah, he's kind of a good guy in his own <laughs> horrible way. Yeah. I, <laughs> my inner snob wants to sneer at that a little bit. I, yeah. I just, I don't care. I was just so it's happy. It's sweet. It's sweet. I mean, it, in Rocky too, one of the best jokes. <laughs> Rocky just gets married. And the guy's there, like, at the wedding. <laughs> and he pulls Rocky aside, and he's like, Rocky, I know that, like, people are trying to get you to do commercials and things, but I don't think that's good for you. I think that you need to invest your money, and you can invest it with me, and I'll take care of it for you. What do you think about condominiums? <laughs> and, <laughs> and Rocky kind of looks around and pulls him aside and says... I've never used one. <laughs> wow. That's pretty great. Well, there's all kinds of dumb stuff like that the movie doesn't do. Like, it, it doesn't make that, even if that's too sweet. Oh. I'm just happy it didn't do it. And oh, I'm happy yeah. it didn't do any number of things. I wasn't expecting him to go catch Burgess Meredith's character and be like, okay, yeah, you can train me. I was just like, yeah, he's understandably bitter. This trainer sucks, and this is how this movie is going to be, and the movie will find some other device for training Rocky, but instead it's like, no, actually, Rocky's a sweet guy. He's going to give this guy a chance, and it's going to be sweet. I was like, oh, I didn't really expect that. <laughs> yeah. So the movie's always doing stuff like that. Yeah, that's one of those things that's, it's like, oh, the movie handled, resolved this plot point in a way that's simultaneously kind of perfunctory, but also... Like, oh, sweet, we don't have to waste time. Like, of course he's going to make up with this guy, and or you know, he needs a trainer. Well, he's going right. to do it in a way with no dialogue. It's just a shot of, like, it's like a long, a long shot, shot of him of going and putting street. his hand on his back. And you're like, oh, that was well done. Like, yeah, And we just, like, cut out 15 boring minutes out of this movie where right. they're, they're estranged from each other and Rocky yeah, has to come no, around. Yeah, it's just like, and, yeah. you feel all the drama, you feel all of the pressure, and the, why didn't you invest in me before? You're just going to make money off of me. And then you, it's like, well... Who else is going to invest in me? And I, I've got to vent my rage. Like, of course I would be bitter. So the movie's going to spend time with me being angry. But then, eh, I'm done with that. Yep. You have the same sort of thing in... Uh, man, I'm sorry to keep doing Rocky this. Rocky too. Well, what happens is 
Rocky wants to take, he's at his back's against the wall. He wants to take the fight. And Mickey's like, you can't do it. You're like partially blind out of your eye from the last fight. Like he's going to destroy you. And he like slaps him a couple times. And they have a scene in the hallway again. And this time it's Mickey saying, no, I'm not going to fight you. And then a little bit later, they're both watching Apollo on the news or something like that, just mocking the crap out of Rocky. And the next thing you know, there's a bang, bang, bang at Rocky's door. And it's Mickey and it's... Let's destroy the bum or something like that. You know, you know, I think we ought to knock his block off. Yeah, so that's the line. <laughs> they put it in Burgess Meredith's mouth, and he, of course, delivers it as only he cheesily can. and perfectly, and uh-huh. yeah, as only he can. And I don't know, it's total sports nerd geek stuff, like right. cheese ball. But it's but it's all in the context of like actually, I if you're a loser, you don't have to keep being a loser. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You shouldn't be a loser anymore. And it's the whole movie is just very sweet that way. Like, no, there's a lot of reasons for me to keep being a loser. And I kind of have a bad context. And my bet, my best friend is kind of a drag. But so what? I'm not going to yep. be a loser. Not to mention and, a drunk. <laughs> and a drunk. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Adrian's not going to be a loser either. And she's going to be like, I'm not a loser. And that's how things can go. So it just kinda, I just didn't expect it to be so optimistic. I mean, that's the whole Rocky deal. But I, like I said, I wasn't plugged into it. So. Well, I think what this movie does so well that I always forget because it doesn't, it's not something that I'm used to in the genre or the, like, like most feel good movies or inspirational movies. Yeah, they start out, they have to start out dark. They have to start out with the team losing. They have to start out in the dumps. There has to be something for the character to recover from or overcome. Sure. But you always kind of feel like, you're in the machinery of a feel-good movie. Right. This movie reminds me a little bit, in this one way only, of something like It's a Wonderful Life, where it's got a feel-good ending, but it could just as easily have a feel-bad ending, given what you've seen coming up. Like, yeah, that's It right. feels like a drama about a character who's not having a wonderful life for most of the movie, and it's convincingly that way, and it's not all just set up for a payoff. This movie, some of it's just the zeitgeist some of it's just sort of what they happened to capture with 70s philadelphia i think but it just it feels like rocky is plausibly in a world where he is just always a small time collector for this gangster dude and his dreams don't come true and like it it, this could very easily be for two-thirds of it just be a little quirky drama about people who struggle and then it it's still even 40 years later or 50 years later, whatever it is, with all the baggage and all the Rocky movies, it still kind of feels convincingly enough that way that when the triumph comes, it doesn't just feel like it was inevitable. It feels like the gods really had to smile on Rocky and he really had to be persistent and well, he really overcame something. Yeah, but also it feels like the boxing victory really is secondary, which is how the movie is structured. The boxing, yeah, boxing exactly. victory is secondary. It really is about like... He does. He did decide. No matter what happened, he actually successfully decided to be someone who could the, tell a little girl not to use bad words. Yeah, yeah. He's gonna be somebody. Yeah. And the moment Rocky actually wins in the fight is the moment he gets back up. Yeah. That last time when Mickey's telling him to stay down, and Apollo thinks he's won, and Apollo looks over and you see that sort of like say what you want about uh, what's his face as an actor. The, Carl Weathers uh, about Carl Weathers, the look that he gives in that moment of just having his soul taken by the fact that Rocky got back up on his feet is really great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then that's it. Like he's won. Like 
nothing else matters at that about how that fight ends. They changed the whole drama of the fight for Rocky too. Apollo just is mauling mm-hmm. Rocky, all of Rocky too. He's just like beating him senseless the right. whole fight. It's not an even match where Apollo is being surprised. Apollo is just mm-hmm. dominating the crap out of Rocky. Which is how you expect this one to go. I mean, which is how you expect this one to go. You've been programmed to expect lose, 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 win, last possible second. Yeah, and in this one, Rocky's like surprisingly putting up an even fight to the end, and then in Rocky Two, Apollo is just demolishing the crap out of Rocky the whole fight, and then Rocky comes on strong at the end and and gets a lucky punch in because Apollo is determined. Apollo can just stand to the side. He's won the fight. He's dominated the whole fight, but Apollo's pride is I've got to go in for the knockout. And when he goes in for the knockout, Rocky gets his shot. Right. Do you have any revelations in watching this movie again? Like uh, your, what's your big picture thoughts? Obviously you love the movie and love the franchise. I just forget how much I loved it. I forgot how much I loved it. I forgot. And I've revisited it. I don't know, probably in my twenties and was like, Oh man, this is really great stuff. Like this isn't just the kid stuff. I remembered as being or whatever. But I haven't hadn't come back to it since then. And so I just love it. I just love it. I think it's great. I think it's it's not quite, you know, what separates it from Spielberg. So it's like almost there. It's like almost there with Spielberg. But it's just not fun, top to bottom, the way that a Spielberg movie is fun. It's a good movie. And kind of formative one. But and I love it. But Yeah, it's a movie that I really love it too. It's I don't think I could actually reverse engineer this movie. If we stepped into a parallel dimension where there was no Rocky and I didn't just remember it beat for beat and I had to recreate it. If you told me to do that with Star Wars, I could recreate, I could actually do it because I know the beats of the hero's journey. And this is, of course, a hero's journey film. But the weird mix of kind of quirky character comedy and stuff uh-huh. that actually it would be like if Star Wars was the hero's journey and resolved itself as a hero's journey and followed the beats of a hero's journey. But then like half the movie was Luke hanging out with Han Solo and they weren't just archetypes. They were remarkably specific characters and they were just like- That could only be played- By those actors. By those actors with the specific chemical combinations. Right. All firing in the exact same ways. And they they all sort of have to do double duty as like, this is Rocky, the, the type, and this is- Rocky, this remarkably specific character. You know, we talk a lot about Luke is intentionally boring because yeah. you want to be able to plug yourself into him. Well, Rocky's not that actually. No, you, no. you can you could take Star Wars. You could go to George Lucas and say, "Okay, we're from the future, and you got your casting all wrong." Right. You could change the entire cast. The movie still plays and stills a hit. It just doesn't matter. Like you can plug and play. You can argue that Harrison Ford matters, but outside of that. It doesn't matter that they got Alec Guinness, and certainly it doesn't matter that they got Mark Hamill, and certainly it doesn't matter that they got Carrie Fisher. Like, it's just, those just happen to be the people that they plugged in to Mm -hmm. a formula that was going to win no matter what they did. Right. But not only can you not imagine Rocky without Stallone, you can't imagine it without Talia Shire. You can't really imagine it without some of the other supporting cast. I think it's weird how much, like, like in a normal, if I'm writing this movie, it's like, just in terms of screenplay structure and storytelling and the way that it works, it's like him finding a girl, him interacting with Polly, all of this stuff has to be so connected to his like primal Joseph Campbellian quest. 
and it's yeah. sort of not. I mean, I know it sort of is too. I know, but it's, it's so hidden. It's it, like it hides that structure. Yeah, it really hides it Buries well, it. and it, it really is. It's like it doesn't know what it's doing. Like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing is what it feels like, and so you're left with either this is just an accident, something work that of came genius. out of the id, mm-hmm. fully formed, or this is the work of a genius this is either accidental genius or it's the work of a genius genius but it's it's nothing in between right well and we've just talked about i mean obviously rocky 2 sounds like a masterpiece but it's not like stallone has been able to recreate, recreate this every time and i i really don't know if i could i mean i would be stuck between if i tried to do this if i just tried to make this movie the problem that i would run into is i would either make the character stuff so connected to the archetypal stuff that it would just all feel like a fairy tale, which is fine, but it wouldn't be this movie. But the only way to do it then is for you to write it as yourself as Rocky, right? Like, Yeah, but then I would do the other thing. I think I could also fall into the other trap, which is just writing a hangout movie that happens to have a little structure. This movie almost is just a hangout movie. Like the poly stuff, does it resolve? I don't know, not really, kind of. Is Adrian super connected to his quest? Well, yes, but also it's just the thing that he happens to be doing. I mean, this movie walks such a... I, don't, I do not think that I could make this happen. I think, I think you're right. The best, the only way I could make it happen is by accident if I was just talking about myself and my life and if I sort of saw my life as a Campbellian quest and so it's like everything would tie in. But I just don't think that this is an easy movie. It's as formulaic as it is, it's not an easy movie to engineer. It's more like a feels more like a quest, just not to be a loser than yeah. it is a proper hero's quest. And everything makes sense in that context, like all the stuff with Polly, with Adrian, the boxing. But it's not primarily a hero's quest boxing movie. It yeah, just but doesn't move that way. Then if you cast it that way, it's like you don't actually have catharsis in each one of those arenas. Like with Polly, it's kind of like, well, okay, this is how you negotiate having a friend who's a loser and isn't going to become not a loser. With Adrian, it's like, we're going to take the next step. We're going to make this happen. But it's not like we're going to get married. And it's like we kind of get there early in the movie, actually. And then we are just sort of happy with each other. It's like, it's a very weird dramatic structure, actually. And a very effective one. But it's not (laughs) how you would write this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is like every part of it, Stallone seems to know and have affection for every part of the city he walks through. I'm going to interact with these guys who sing on the street corner. Now I'm going to interact with these teenage punks, yeah, pre-adolescent punks. Yeah. And they all mean something to him. They're all people. They're yeah. all vignettes of something that he knows and cares about and wants people to see. Yeah. 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 Right. Like he wants those people in his life or those people that he's run into or interacted with or whatever to feel seen. Mm -hmm. And it does a nice job of that. Yeah. Well, and it wants to say as much as Rocky succeeds at the end of the movie and becomes an extraordinary hero, I think it wants to praise his everyday sort of heroism. Like I I think this, I read a bunch of synopsises of this movie. Often when I'm preparing, after I watch a movie, I'll read the Wikipedia synopsis or whatever, just to remind myself of the beats that we're going to be talking about. Nobody ever includes what I consider to be one of the most crucial character scenes, which is when he takes that little girl aside and says, hey, you don't want to become this. Everybody just skips skips that. To me, that's so important to illustrate who this character is. how it ends. I know. I love it. Hey, Rocky, up yours. And then he walks away mumbling about, yeah, who do you think you are trying to 
tell people how to live their lives. Like, what's wrong with And it doesn't work. You see her back with the bad people. Yeah, and, that's and right. It's never like, we don't come back to that. But it's just like, here's a guy who can't help but He's trying to be sort of a take responsibility guy. in his just, in his self-effacing and also braggadocious, charming way. He just can't help but love the people around him. We'd want this guy to be a deacon or an elder or something like that. Maybe he'd yeah. need a little theological beefing up. <laughs> no, but you'd look uh, yeah. at this guy and just be like, "This is a man who ought to aspire to," because he takes he cares. He loves everybody around him. He takes responsibility. He's going to come to church and within one visit, he'll find somebody to take aside and encourage or gently rebuke or like, he's just that guy. I, I think my favorite scene might be the one with, where he's in the apartment with Adrian and she's, I forget what she's doing, but she's trying to encourage him. He's like, just go make the meat. Mm -hmm. And then the, I mean, the film plays it so subtle, but it's just like, he, he like, starts to look sad as she goes off and then he gets up she's like hey yo i'm sorry <laughs> and it's just because it, because he knows that's how polly treats her and he doesn't you don't have to have a speech about that's how your brother treats you and the film's like just trust the viewer to know what's going on but it's yeah. just this sweet thing where it's like he's just gonna catch himself and be like no 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 that's how she's been treated her whole life that that i wasn't even that bad right then but that mm. was still that same thing i'm not gonna do that she doesn't I'm gonna go apologize. Any more of that yeah. yeah, I just love that. And Rocky in this movie is, is a character, you don't actually get this with every protagonist in every movie. He's a character who you can watch process like that and be with him and you know him well. Within a few scenes, you're just like, okay, I understand what this guy's doing and I'm with him. Like, oh, he walked into the ice skating rink and he thought they were going to, and now he has to talk this guy down. And so, so many times a scene like that the character is supposed to be a little ahead of you as the audience, and it's like, oh, he's a little smarter. He's got a trick up his sleeve. He's He's got a quip, whatever. But Rocky, it's like we're always really plugged into what he's trying to accomplish, big or small, and we're right there with him, and we're thinking out the strategy kind of, and we're watching him respond, and we're feeling his feeling. You yeah. know, you feel <laughs> Was it even the best move to do it the way that he did? I don't know. It's just like what he had. This yeah. is what he had. Yeah. Being dejected by the girl saying, up yours, and kind of mumbling to himself. It's like, we've all been there. I put my neck out for somebody, and then they're upset about it, and why did I waste my time, and I'm so stupid. And Nobody's going to follow Rocky. Nobody's going to be inspired by Rocky. <laughs> Nobody cares, which is why it is really well does feel really well earned actually when the city's sort of like following rocky as he's training to fight apollo yeah but yeah. what a lot of what we're actually talking about is world building mm -hmm. yeah i think that's true and i think that's what avildsen really brings to this movie and yeah 1970s philadelphia is a storybook world that he doesn't assume anybody understands but him and doesn't skimp on laying groundwork and building it out for people. Yeah. And I think that's pretty... Well, I think aspiring writers, especially as young writers, have to understand this. In order to be specific, or in order to be universal, you have to be specific. Yeah. Telling a specific Philadelphia story makes this movie so much more universal than if it just happened in anywhere USA and we didn't have the specific feeling because there's things we can plug ourselves. Maybe our city is so, littered with cigarette butts on the ground. There's so and, much of this movie and its ambiance and its world that you feel like it couldn't have happened anywhere else but Philadelphia. Right. Right. But that's what makes it special and universal. It, and it is secret sauce. Yeah. Kind of like Denny Villanueva's Dune. You could, couldn't have had it anywhere else but on that patch of sand or that... <laughs> other you know, patch of sand? Or that, other, or that giant empty palace that looks like 
giant empty palaces always look. It couldn't have happened anywhere else. Well, I think that's actually a good negative comparison point because that is that does explain what it is I don't like about that movie, which is Arrakis does not feel like there's no there there there. Yeah, there's no there there. Perfect way to put it. The other thing I keep thinking that's I I kind of don't want to say because it's sort of it's this is like the most mystically woo woo kind of artsy thing I've ever said on this podcast, but there is just something about the verisimilitude of actually filming in Philadelphia, like the fact that this wasn't done on sound stages, the fact that the that I think they did a little bit of it in L.A., but it is they did it feels like just capture like and store in batteries the psychic energy of a time and a place and it does make this movie special in a way that would be impossible to recreate i don't think without actually filming in philadelphia at that time you'd get the same movie like it is it is special how much philadelphia is a character in this movie (laughs) yeah so what else you guys got well just one thing i i was thinking while watching this movie is man (laughs) it at least watching rocky you're like what a this was just a more decent time. You watch Rocky go at it with Mr. Gazzo's driver. Mm-hmm. They're being really nasty to each other. And you're just like, man, these guys are so civil, polite right. to each other <laughs> in their nastiness. Like, there's no F bombing. There's no like foul. They're just like, they're basically, they're almost polite. Mm-hmm. They clearly hate each other's guts. They're being really nasty. But the nastiness is so restrained and so much less nasty than. What you expect. Yeah, Time Magazine said this movie was what Scorsese's Mean Streets would have been if Frank Capra had made it. Yeah. Which is is the the, the snide way of putting what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I I mean, it's not whitewashing. It's rocky washing. But what they don't understand is Capra understood what humans were. I mean, it's a wonderful life. Like, that movie knows what Violet is. It just doesn't feel the need to... Spell it out for us or use the word. Unless you fill in the blanks. One of the, this is a place where I think a lot of writers, creatives, movie makers really go wrong. And it's that need to fill in every blank and every detail instead of understanding that the potency of your storytelling is, lies in the imagination of the viewer. Right. Right. And so there's so much we repeat the dopey adage all the time that you give your audience two plus two and let them make four. You don't give them four, right? But a lot of that actually can happen on a moral level too in your storytelling. Yeah, I think that's true. You don't have to give them the explicit version. You can hint at it mm-hmm. and let them fill in the blanks mm-hmm. with as much as or as little as they bring to it. Yeah. I have the answer. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I think of that sort of thing, that moral math as being what ruins so many modern horror movies in my mind it's the difference between silence of the lambs where dr hannibal lecter is locked up and we know he's a cannibal but he's behind bars for most of the movie and we never really see what he's capable of and then the sequel hannibal where he's out and about and on the town and famously he's eating people's brains and stuff like that but it's like no matter what the most horrible thing that thomas harris who wrote those novels could imagine it's not as horrible as me just knowing that this guy's a monster who's capable of anything and certainly capable of anything I can imagine. Because anything then becomes a reflection of your own... My own fears. Fears. Right. And that's much more scary. Right. Right? You bring your imagination, your fears to bear on the specter that's created. 
in Hannibal Lecter. And so you can do that with any number of characters, both positive and negative, yeah. both good and bad, on the level of creating mystery and giving space for people's moral imaginations to be a reflection of their fears and desires and everything else right? in their own sense of virtue. That's a part of good storytelling is creating space for people to fill in blanks with their imagination. For goodness sake, that's relationships. Mm -hmm. That's relationships with the opposite sex. That's just, that's all creative things. That's poetry. That's art is giving people space, creating a structure and opportunity to give people space to process themselves. Yeah. Star Wars does not exist as an artifact fact in and of itself. Star Wars is a experience that I have with Star Wars. I mean, not to be too subjective or too woo-woo about it, but it is a chemical combination between me and the movie that occurs, and then it is the memory. And, and listen, everyone listening to this under, understands this on a, on a visceral level. Like, you listen to us talk about these movies, and you get offended when, we're, when we feel... And we negotiate this in our own conversations where each of us feel with certain movies like we ha we actually have the special relationship with this particular movie mm. that and we're offended that you think you're the one that has the special relationship with this movie and we're negotiating that in our conversations and you're negotiating that as you listen to us have this conversation mm -hmm. and you're negotiating that in conversations you have with other people about movies that are or books that are special to you or that you feel like you have a unique relationship with. And that's because good movies and good books create enough space for your own imagination to work and for you to develop your own personal experience of that movie that is unique to you. Mm. And so then it does become very personal. And that's not to say that all art is subjective and beauty's only beauty has no objectivity and art has no objectivity and it's only in the eye of, of the beholder and you just sort of passively create things and it is what no so, so it's an objective vessel that's either well made or poorly made either morally made or immorally made an objective vessel for subjective feelings something may be terrible and you may love it right there we have a objective truth about the thing and a truth about yourself and uh, we're always negotiating this space i mean uh, what mm -hmm. episode was it where we went off on a king arthur legend of the sword riff for oh, some Nathan. reason i mean only uh, every third every episode. episode yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there you have exactly what jake's describing you have ben feels like he has a special relationship with guy ritchie and with mm. that movie nathan feels like he has a special relationship with king arthur and so they ne they nearly come to blows because their special relationships are in contradiction to one another. <laughs> and Ben's like, your special relationship doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with my special relationship. My special relationship is the special relationship. And I'm like, well, your special relationship is stepping on my special relationship. And we're just both two guys with special relationships. And that's what you have when you have anything that has any kind of artistic potency to it, which the Arthur story does. Mm -hmm. And you Anybody who would want to argue otherwise is a moron, mm -hmm. which Guy Ritchie, you don't have to like him. You don't have to love him to say that he's a pretty special filmmaker with a pretty special style that really resonates with a certain kind of person. And I, I really enjoy his style mm -hmm. too and mm -hmm. the types of movies that he makes. And so he has fans and he has fans for good reason. And, and anytime somebody like, a guy Richie, who's more of an auteur, 
can connect with people. There's a special relationship that's developed there and people have special relationships with Spielberg and Lucas and all kinds of people. Hitchcock, it doesn't matter who it is. Orson Welles, Francis Ford Coppola, it doesn't matter. But Martin Scorsese, it just doesn't matter, you know, what end of the spectrum of pop art or... Well, there's a certain sense in which oftentimes the more sort of specialized the person's talent is, the more special the relationship feels. In other words, yeah. Guy Ritchie's doing challenging things that not everybody's going to like. So Ben's or appreciate. Get, so Ben feels like an actual an extra kinship because he does get it and like it. Um, mm-hmm. where he sees at, it and understands it. He's an insider. It, you know, and Ritchie creates part of his part of what he's doing is creating that sense, creating mm-hmm. insiders. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which has its place. Whereas if somebody insults the Iron Man franchise, I'm not going to be up in arms because yeah, we all kind of like it. It's all it kind of has speaks to all of us a little bit. There are things uh-huh. like that too, and then there are things that speak a lot <laughs> to few of us, and then there are all gradations in between. I mean, the other thing I wanted to say about the notion of character is that we live in a land that is downstream of Freud and Jung and the psychologists, and our understanding of the human personality is not actually the same as most dramatists across history would have had. I mean, somebody like in Aristotle's poetics, what we're talking about is not personality. It's not about personality. Greek theater is not about personality. It's about action and reaction. I do this, this happens. Mm -hmm. That's all it's about. And actually, when you look at Shakespeare, one way that you can make a lot of sense of what he's doing, because sometimes if you try and bring post-Freudian psychology to it, you're like, well, okay, why is this character changing? But no, it's just like, Macbeth is this way because he did this thing. He did a thing. It's not actually about his daddy didn't love him or what motivated this choice. It's about the choice itself. It's about watching the choice play out. And I think the 70s auteur cinema is often like that. Like The Godfather is another, and Rocky are both in a certain sense, not all that interested in what their characters are in some nebulous psychological sense. They're very interested in what their characters do. And so Michael Corleone was he always bad? Was he always good? Who knows? But we know what choice he made. And we watched that tragedy unfold and we're engrossed by it. And mm-hmm. we know the choices that his father made and that his brother made. And we have a saga, a very powerful saga of different people making different choices. And then. And we're connecting it to real people in our lives right. and real choices that we've made and real choices we've observed others make that we know. And, to, and there's enough space it, with all the specificity that you no like nobody nobody relates to that family right and yet everybody relates to that family on some level and so uh-huh. that movie hits everybody different in their own special way and that's part of the genius of it like, right and and you can spend a long time talking about why people make the choices but some of the reason that the, those conversations are funny because the movie actually doesn't spend a lot of time interrogating it now, Rocky is interesting because Rocky is very much a character. He's very much somebody that we understand. But also, when you start to think about the things you don't know about Rocky, how much you, ha- how much you have to sort of fill in, how much he is just a guy that exists to take responsibility for the people around him and to persist in his idea of good, and how little the movie feels. I mean, we have photographs on his around his mirror. We have some things. Yeah. But any movie now, it's like, well, Rocky, you're gonna. Why don't you break down in tears and tell us the story about your dad, and you know how he almost made it as a boxer, but then he couldn't quite cut it, and like it, it's gonna give us 
so much more in terms of fleshing this guy out as a fully formed individual and fleshing certainly the girl out. And But it, it actually doesn't really... It's nice to have a break from that. It's nice to have a break from that. Like, he was mad at Mickey. Now he's not. You know why? Because he's a good guy who made the choice not to be mad at Mickey. Adrian was shy and repressed because her brother this way. and But now she's blasping. And that's the story. And she made that choice. And we don't actually need to understand everything. It's more powerful if we don't. And so much, uh, you know, that mirror, to me, it's that mirror with the pictures on it. Like that, that. That's filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's Brad Bird and the Iron Giant where the kid's going to go to bed and he's going to put on his helmet. And you're going to see just sort of in the background, if you catch a glimpse, if you're paying attention, you're going to see a, a little picture of him on his dad's shoulders and his next to an airplane or something like that. His dad was mm-hmm. some kind of pilot who right. died. And you fill in all the blanks yourself with all your own imagination, right? And it's all there for you. And you've got this mirror of pictures that he's going to stare at and Adrian's going to come and say, is this you? And he's going to say, yeah, he's going to go take the picture and put it somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. he has a history and there's some sadness and it doesn't like you fill in the blanks. Yeah. It's there. All the visual pieces are there. And then now the rest is up to your imagination and you take it as far as you want to take it. You don't need to, you don't need to think about it if you don't want to think about it. He's just a guy who made, some decisions. Right. Or you think about the fact that where are his parents and how long has he been without his parents and what kind of a sad childhood does this poor did this poor kid have? Like and how did he get to the place where he's at now where the only person looking out for him is this mob guy who has some sympathy for him because we're all Italian so we're all somehow family. Like and if you are a guy with all that stuff, yeah. you have a turtle, you have turtles named Cuff, Cuff and Link. Link. Like, how do you become that version of that guy? Right. Um, <laughs> Coming up with stupid jokes to tell the pet store girl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you only have Cuff and Link because maybe you walked by the pet store and saw a cute girl in there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you just need to keep finding reasons to go back to the pet <laughs> store. But I don't know. Maybe I just filled in that blank. Yeah. Right? Like. Yeah. Maybe that's my Rocky, but maybe that's not yeah, the I Rocky mean, that Sylvester Stallone would tell Maybe you. he was always a guy who was going to have turtles, and therefore one day he saw yep. Adrian. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, I don't know. Well, we should talk about the love story. It's a great love story. He's going to have Moby Dick, too. He can't. You keep talking about Cuff and Link, but you're short-selling Moby Dick. Yeah, and the fact that he's named Moby Dick, like like Warrior. Like, oh, we're going to have the guy listen to Moby Dick. Our movie's deep. <laughs> but <laughs> Stallone's... Or uh, Rocky's never read Moby Dick, couldn't possibly read Moby Dick, <laughs> but he's sure gonna have a fish named Moby Dick, and he's mm-hmm. gonna <laughs> bring him over and let him visit with the turtles and let him w- watch some TV together. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. So let's go through. So we should talk about Adrian and the love story. It's a great love story. There are two pieces of serendipity to the love story that are fun to recount. Number one, they were supposed to have extras for the ice skating rink, and it was supposed to just be a regular ice skating rink scene. <laughs> And they could only hire one extra. <laughs> and so Stallone has 10 minutes and he writes the scene. And it's one of everybody's favorite scene from the franchise and from the. It's I a, love it. It's immensely it's charming scene. Oh, man. Constraints are so wonderful. Number two, <laughs> I don't know what exactly they had written for the scene in the apartment where they can, they finally make love, maybe, or whatever they do, where she comes out of her shell. But Talia Shire was sick. She had a cold and she did not want to get Stallone sick and so 
all her hesitancy, like the entire way she played the scene wasn't about acting. It was just the, about like, I don't want this guy to touch me right now because he's going to get a cold. And it ended up completely changing the nature of the scene. And you have this little will they, won't they duet that plays out, which is which was apparently supposed to go quite differently. I don't know how in the script, but it just serendipitously happened. Um, hmm. It's, I mean, it's the scene that makes the romance of the whole movie. Yeah. Everything about the romance is great. I mean, the, when she says, do you want a roommate? And he says, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just like the perfect little. <laughs> well, I love that little turn of attitude in her at that moment too. Mm-hmm. Like there is real person. Like you don't see it. And then you left with, did Rocky see it? Mm-hmm. I, or, yeah. did it or did he just bring it out? Did he create it? Either way, she does a beautiful job of, without much on the page, she does a beautiful job of bringing so much to, without overdoing, I think it's so easy to overdo, as I've already said, an ugly duckling role where you're supposed to blossom. It's so easy to go too far, to make yourself too dowdy on the one extreme and then suddenly turn into a beauty queen to make up for the fact that early in the movie you had to be dowdy. But she plays that stuff so realistically and doesn't seem to have a lot of ego about Well, she plays it so well that, I don't think I realized how beautiful Talia Shire is until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. I think the the dowdy just sort of stuck stuck to her even after the glow up. Yeah, I always kind of think kid. I think of her as kind of like a Shirley MacLaine. No, not Shirley MacLaine. The chick in The Shining, Jack Nicholson's wife. I, I, think, <laughs> of her, I think of her as that sort of mousy. I just lost your name, but yes, it's Shirley something. I don't know why I lost it, but yes. Yeah. But it's but, the Shelley Duvall. There Duvall. you go. Yeah. It was the inverse Mary from It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. But not never quite as Mary as Mary ever. I mean, like Mary saw something in George and wanted it to blossom. No, I mean she starts as the librarian. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. never quite makes it to full on Mary. Yeah, no, she just nobody can be as vibrant as Mary Donna in It's Reed. a Wonderful Life. Yeah. That's yeah. impossible. No. But it's beautiful. I do love how much of it is underplayed and yeah. So, love story, great. Never should have lost track of it in the sequels. Anything else you guys want to say about any of that? Gazo. I think they probably don't. I think they, prob- they probably learned the lesson in the Creed movies. Yes. Well, that's one of the nice things is that the Creed movies, I don't think, even more so than Rocky, they haven't exactly found a way to connect all the hangout stuff to the hero's journey stuff. Like his girlfriend is ultimately maybe a little bit incidental plot-wise, but... That's how I felt watching Creed 1. But you do realize that these movies actually are hangout movies, and Creed gets that. Like, you actually just want to... Especially in this... Like, Creed 2, it's not a great movie, but it's just no. like, yay, we're in his mansion hanging out with our friends again, and she's working on her mu- music career, and yep. it works. But it's, it doesn't have the kind of power that, like, our the Rocky has and the way it's able to somehow connect those two things without any obvious connective tissue. Let's talk about Gazo real quick. I do not like the fact that Gazo turns out to be such a softy. I do think that that's just a little bit too much. Well, it it just ruins the Cinderella of it all for me. It'd be like, it doesn't ruin it, but it dampens it a little bit. Like if the evil stepmother said, I know you're trying to escape from me and find your prince, but here's $500, go buy a dress for the ball. Like it, it kind of feels like yeah, it's sweet that it's kind of sweet and it's kind of quirky and it's kind of fun and it's kind of not doing the cliche, but 
maybe we just needed the cliche. Maybe this guy just needed to be the bad guy that we needed to. I am glad there wasn't a, like you were dreading Ben a big subplot about. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad it just. I like, got. I've got money riding on this, and I need you to. Yeah, I need you to throw it. Rock. Yeah, uh, yeah. that would have been boring. But, but that doesn't even play because Rocky can't throw a fight that. That the outcome's already known. Everybody knows Rocky's going to lose, and he'll be lucky to go three rounds against Apollo Creed. There's no throwing it. Right. The only thing that he can do is go down on the first punch or something like that. I'm yeah. not going to do it. The other thing is, I'm sorry, Gazo just doesn't exist. Like, that's... It's just, it, that, that guy wouldn't be that nice. Like, it, it, yeah. the story does not resolve itself that way. It is fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Save the fairy tale for the very end of the movie. Don't front load too much fairy tale especially when you've done such a good job of world building an actual plausible gritty philadelphia like i don't need it to be slimy i don't need there to be f-bombs i don't need there to be actual prostitutes but i don't know gaza's a bridge too far for me a small bridge too far i don't have too much trouble i just imagine a marlon brando godfather era type guy and i imagine that we're all we're seeing is this one little corner where he has a soft spot for this loser named rocky He's and Italian like him. And there's plenty of other people in his life. That's he's, the he's, part he's, for me that I give it a pass on. Okay, oh, yeah. we're Italian. Yeah. We're all Italians here. We're all family. And so I can, somebody else. So I just needed a scene of Gazo taking some pliers to an Irishman, and I, yeah. I would have loved that. Yeah, that's how I imagine it. That's how I imagine it, too. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just like he's plenty nasty to other people. Just find the right person, find the right time, you'll get, it, you'll get the evil Gazo. But Gazo's a godfather to this, he's a slumlord to this, like, ultra ratty like he's a sub godfather to right. whatever but he takes it on himself to take care of he's got some civic pride some community yeah spirit. he's got some and it, especially that italian stuff right like so rocky i give you a job i expect you to break a guy's thumbs right but i'm gonna take care of you rock because you're the orphan italian dummy who can't get any other kind of work anyway and i'm a good guy i take care of my people mm. yeah i mean to me it's just like Okay, Rocky just ruined your entire business model. If I can <laughs> if I can expect to borrow and not get my thumbs broken, then not only do you lose your business, you're dead. Other the other gangs will come for you. Like if you know anything about this stuff, like no. <laughs> no. Rocky's own thumbs are getting broken. Like Gazo doesn't get to be Gazo if he's this unruthless. So mm-hmm. zero stars. Horrible movie. <laughs> That's funny. All right. We need to at least talk. Well, we still got to talk about Polly, but let's, where do we go next? Let's talk about Mickey. So here's my thing. I said I had a problem with Mickey. My problem yeah. with Mickey is maybe a personal problem. I just can't get past the parodies and the, like, Mickey is a little bit like we said with Quentin Jaws. Uh, I love Quentin Jaws, but Quentin Jaws does just feel like he steps out of an entire other movie. Just like, hey, I'm a movie character over here. And Mickey is just such a movie character played by an actor in a movie. <laughs> and and Stallone has great charisma and everything, but he still feels like he involves he's like he's in this guy. with Mickey, it's like, here's a great actor playing a character. Stallone just is Rocky. Everybody else just is what they are. But this is like a performance. Like it's designed to win an Academy Award. It's and Burgess Meredith knocks it out of the park and everybody loves the character. And maybe I just can't see past the parodies. And the, I think the problem might be with me and with it actually might be where, for me at least, culture has sort of caught up with this movie and made swallowed it. Swallowed it. Swallowed it. Huh. But yeah, I, I just can't stand Mickey. Like, he doesn't work can't for me. Stand Mickey. I, it's not that I can't stand him. I'm just, I check out this part of the movie doesn't. 
we're going to have crap lightning. It's like, oh, he's saying the line, the movie line, the movie line that a movie character would say. Yeah, eat Um, lightning and crap thunder. Get the line right. Yeah. I mean, I know everybody loves Mickey. I guess that's my hot take for the episode. Everybody loves Mickey, right? You guys probably love Mickey. Yeah, you can't not love Mickey. Sorry. I like Mickey Mouse. I like Mickey. I mean, to me, to me, I guess I read him in Rocky terms. So Mm -hmm. I was like, here's, I just read him naturalistically Mm -hmm. somehow. Here's this guy, stiff, angry old man who has his own. The reason he's he acts like he's acting in a movie because is because his character it's do. because he's self mythologized. He's right. like, I'm this great guy. I just never had the right chance, and I and so for me, well, the, he's got to be the kind of guy who can actually run a gym that's full of people who think that they've got a shot making it in the boxing world. So yeah. he's got to sell himself to all of these people as their trainer and as even the though place he's clearly to be a loser, and the place to go. Like, so he's got to be. He has to be an actor. Like, if you think of just in terms of who in the world is going to run the corner gym mm-hmm. that is actually going to convince people to come and train there. Like, you're gonna get these like ghetto white trash Italians and Irishmen and black guys all together in the same place. Jumping rope and hitting heavy bags and hitting speed bags and jumping up and sparring with each other. Like, who can? Yeah, you got to be larger than life. You have to be larger than life to inspire that kind of commitment from people and get them to come to you to train them and see your people to train them. So, that that to me is just always sort of Mm -hmm. worked. Yeah, I I get that. I mean, I think that logic makes total sense. The character as performed just doesn't work for me very well. I think it always has. Maybe if he wasn't such a little guy. Yeah. Maybe if he looked like he would inspire a boxer. Right. (laughs) I just, I feel like he's just angry enough to make it work. I mean, I wouldn't have minded him if he was in The Quiet Man. You know what I mean? Like, if everybody was kind of pitched at his level, it's Uh fine. I I don't think Burgess Meredith's doing anything wrong. I just, it just just feels discordant to me. In in every neighborhood, there's like loud, angry guys who control the room. Mm -hmm. Even in nothing neighborhoods, it doesn't. So he just felt like, oh, he's that guy. He's yeah, just, I think, he's the guy in the I, think I like him in the script, I, and I think yeah. I like Burgess Meredith in general. But so, so, something doesn't work for you. Yeah, it's just huh. one of those things. I'm th- sure I can think of other examples of like maybe seeing Rocky Two will change your mind. Maybe it will, maybe c- it will cement this opinion. Yeah, I hope we'll I have know. to do a Rocky Two check in. Yeah, we have to. Okay, let's. Yeah, it'd be fun. So we still need to talk about Apollo and Polly. Let's talk about Apollo. No, this uh, he got pretty well criticized at the time as a racist caricature, like. No, actually, I have a quote here from Muhammad Ali himself. So Muhammad Ali, there's a really wonderful article I encourage everyone to look up where Roger Ebert went to see Rocky II while it was playing with Muhammad Ali. And so you have Muhammad <laughs> Ali just talking through the whole movie. Wow. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Send that to me, please. Yeah, I will. Yeah, um, likewise. So it's got all these quotes and stuff. Let me just find. It's got like all his commentary. Yeah, when Adrian says, there's one thing I want you to do for me, when Ali mutters to himself, yeah, beat that N-word's ass. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got all his commentary on the boxer. The worst thing a boxer can do, it tightens the muscles. A fighter never lifts weights, but it always looks good in a movie. So anyway, here's the thing he has to say overall. For the black man to come out superior, Ali said, would be against America's teachings. I have been so great in boxing, they had to create an image like Rocky a white image on the screen to counteract my image in the ring. 
America has had has to have its white images no matter where it gets them. Jesus, Wonder Woman, Tarzan, and Rocky. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. Well, I could see how and he's actually very gracious and he, he likes the movie, but I could see how he would be personally offended by the portrayal as Apollo Creed. Absolutely. And and by the whole story of the little scrappy white guy. S- small scrappy dopey white guy who can take him down right it's like okay well where is that guy in real life his name's chuck wepner and he couldn't yeah his name's chuck wepner and he couldn't and nobody else could either right and yeah i mean i could see the criticism the idea that yeah you've all vicariously as, as white america has really enjoyed me as their athlete but now the most popular movie series in the world is a fantasy fanfic of destroying me in the yeah, ring. A white guy destroying me in the ring. Yeah, um, I totally feel that. that. Makes sense. And that was a that was a criticism, not just of his, but of the intelligentsia. The chattering class had that problem with Rocky. Like, hey, I think it's a legitimate problem. We've got actually. a legit black guy that's like the king of the world right now in this field, and we're going to make a fantasy about taking a white, him down. A white, a, white, a white guy taking him down, and him being sort of callow enough to set the trap for himself. I don't know. I don't know what that does to. I, I know Creed becomes an important ally in later movies and obviously has a movie series now about his son and well they're going to fight again and creed's going to beat the crap out of rocky and it's his pride that's going to take him down at the end of that fight and then apollo's going to retire and train rocky yeah three and he's going to come out of retirement to do a little exhibition with the dopey russian and just like he did with rocky he's not going to take the fight seriously enough and the russian's going to kill him rocky's going to have to go with it Right. And then his son's going to have a bunch of adventures all by himself. And, uh, with a big chip on his shoulder that reprocesses and retreads all of it and deals with some of the problems of it and puts Michael B. Jordan across from Stallone himself yep. in a way that I think it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it's really smart. It's really smart. I think Ryan Coogler is kind of a genius at this sort of thing. And he managed to do it all without making us feel bad towards the original Rocky or towards Stallone. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is really sweet. Or George Actually. Carl Weathers for as a way of making casting him as the Uncle Tom of the whole. Yeah, and it doesn't and, sell out anybody. It gives it all back to you, but but it's definitely in conversation with all of those all those themes, and uh, it's pretty pretty smartly done, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. For I, mean, sure. I just think Coogler's a genius, and Michael B. Jordan's excellent casting for that kind of a role. And we'll see where it goes from. I basically handed it all over to Jordan for the third one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like written, directed, and performed by by Jordan, I think. Yep. I think that's all true. And so we'll see where he takes it. <laughs> well, what do we think about Apollo Creed in this movie? I mean, I think I do agree with you that it actually is unfortunate that he's not fleshed out a little bit more or made to be something. More than Rocky's foil. More than just the Muhammad Ali for us to. <laughs> well, but the one thing that they were always sure to make Creed is much smarter and savvier mm. mm-hmm. than, than, than Rocky. He's a businessman. Right. He's not just the, the fighter. He's an entertainer. He's a businessman. He's calculating. He's, and so they'd give him some upper hand that, I don't know, I think is accurate when it comes to Ali. Like, I think that the idea is there's a, actually a pretty calculating persona behind Muhammad Ali's mm-hmm. 
what you see on TV, and that's part of what they tried to do. And I, I don't think they were mm-hmm. wrong about that. Well, I, I think Carl Weathers is not the world's best actor. Yeah, that's true. And that's part somebody of could bring a little bit more to the part. I like Carl Weathers just fine. He's, yeah, he's well, and he's got he's, a, he's a broad, fun performer. He's a really fun Apollo Creed, and he's got fantastic physique, and he he mm-hmm. pulls a lot of it off really well. He's athletic. He moves well. He definitely hams it up in a right. really fun way. Well, and insofar as he is that sort of corporate sellout type, we do recognize that type. Michael Jordan was that guy. Everybody buys Nike. Yep. Republicans buy Nike too. What's the thing? The stars of today we could name that have that same sort of dynamic going, Kobe, whoever. So it's a type. I mean, I'm glad that they sketched him in a little bit more in in the movies. I'm glad this isn't all we've got. Polly! You guys think Polly's a success of a character? He's a success of a character. Yeah. He's success. They they may they try to make him more lovable in the follow ups where he's just the lovable brother in law with the robot butler whatever with the, the robot the, the robot does come in yeah. number three probably gets a robot for his birthday wow. or something but we're out of ideas yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a little surprising to go back to this movie in view of the franchise and see how much of a kind of the really it almost is the closest thing this film has to a villain he's a real grifting jerk yeah. It does feel maybe a little weird to me that his storyline just kind of doesn't go anywhere. It's one of the things that maybe doesn't quite connect between the archetypalness of it all, the primal story that we're doing, and then the hangout movie of it all. Like, Polly's story feels like it's going to have a, to me at least, it feels like it's going to have a conclusion. And then the conclusion is, well, Adrian moved out and... He made a little bit of money off rock in the process. Yeah, and he backed off. You feel like there's some kind of not not like a fight or anything, but some confrontation, some something to put a pin on in that relationship. And there wasn't quite. I don't know. That trips me. I don't know whether that's a flaw or not, but it, I do trip <laughs> over it when I watch the movie. Yeah, that's interesting. To me, it just adds to the naturalism. Mm-hmm. Well, this not, guy's just stuck. Not every story has a yeah. I don't know what to say. Yeah, like he you, like he's a foil to Rocky in that way. Like here's the guy that had no belief in himself, no sense of persistence and isn't going to get anywhere. Like he's the opposite. He's just bitter and stuck. That's the end of the story of Polly. I don't know. I think that's pretty much all I've got. I mean, I think you guys want to say about the final fight, the training montage, this movie created the, I mean, it's not the first movie with a montage, certainly, or or with a training montage of this type created a certain kind of, we're going to see the guy eating the eggs and then we're going to see the guy jogging. And I love the, Apparently all that was filmed gorilla style. Like they didn't get permits for any of that. Like it's all just run and gun, go down downtown to Philadelphia. And so there's all kinds of little things. They got the guy that tosses Rocky and orange didn't know he was in the movie. He just saw some weirdo jogging by again and again and tossed him an orange. And the, awesome. pe- the people that are kind of like, who is this Rocky guy that watch him? The thing that they extend into a whole thing in the second movie, apparently in the scene that we've all seen, that was all just natural. Like, Huh? There's some people with a camera and some guy jogging by who's not a big star that we don't know. They're all just, you know, you're seeing people behave naturally. And you've got so much, like, beautiful time capsule, the ships and the bridge and the... Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's really great. cool. Really fun. And then you have the fight. The choreogra- choreographers were so mad at the lack of budget and professionalism that they quit. So Stallone simply scripted the fight. 32 pages of... Rocky punches, Rocky does a left, and then Apollo does a block. And then this, he just scripted it all out. Wow. And seriously? He and, what's his face, Carl Weathers learned the complete rounds one, two, 14, and 15. 
And then they shot them, as I said, once with the camera in the ring, once with the camera out of the ring. And that's how they did that, which is pretty that's cool. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's insane. So you may not, it's as Muhammad Ali points out multiple times in his thing with Ebert, none of these guys would last a second in the ring, but you are watching real athleticism and real training pay off and it's cool. It is cool. It's fun. Yeah. It's all character beats, like we said earlier. Yeah. There's a lot of people for whom this fight might be a little anticlimactic just because it's not as dynamic or over the top or whatever, as you've been taught to expect from a billion movies since downstream. downstream of it i don't personally feel that way but i think i'm probably guessing accurately there rocky i, I don't feel it's anticlimactic i didn't feel that no i really i really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah i mean maybe it's only slightly anticlimactic in that he knows what he's going to do he says what he's going to do and then he does it and we're glad that he does it but there's no surprise to be had I mean, I know it's a phony baloney surprise when the characters, oh, no, he's getting the snot beat out of him. He's on the rope. And then he comes back and we, we all know that's going to happen. But there is some kind of built in pleasure to that sort of thing. Whereas this, it doesn't seriously feel like his plans in jeopardy. He falls down. He has to get back up. He has to cut the eye. There's drama to it. I mean, it's a great scene. I'm not really criticizing. I'm just describing. Yeah, kind uh, of. It's in that sense. It fits the rest of the movie. It's a little... It just feels more naturalistic. Lower than, key. Yeah, a lo- little lower key than what you might expect from the greatest sports movie of all time. Is right. this the greatest sports movie of all time? I guess that's a good question to close with. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I've never seen Raging Bull. That's what... Oh, I've seen, Ra- top I- I've seen Raging Bull. Raging Bull, I, I would just I wouldn't consider it to be a sports movie. I mean, no, I despise it. It's, I don't despise it. I think it's amazing, but it it's not a sports movie. It's, it no. doesn't belong to that genre. It's a character study of a real deadbeat i think that boxing movies do have a leg up because of how (laughs) stripped of everything yeah how simple how sort of typological they can be i think that there's a really good case that rocky really is i can say well yeah i'm just going to read you vulture's list of 50 and we'll see if anything so the natural the way back without limits personal best bang the drum slowly goon senna king richard I, Tanya, The Longest Yard, The Boxer, White Men Can't Jump, Major League, Dodgeball, Talladega Knights, Rudy. Rudy. We forgot about Rudy. Sorry, Rocky. Samwise Gamgee. Got his three minutes. What a stupid movie. Bennett like Beckham. I'm sure Rudy's wonderful. The Karate Kid. Eight Men Out, The Fighter. I like that one. Happy Gilmer, The Color of Money, Creed, The Bad News Bears, Sugar, Rush, Tin Cup, Caddyshack, Hoosiers, Okay, Hoosiers actually may be worth talking about. All right, so put a pin in Hoosiers. Moneyball, I like a lot, but that's not. Miracle, Chariots of Fire. We're in top 15 now. He got game, Murderball, When We Were Kings, Field of Dreams, Breaking Away. Field of Dreams and Breaking Away, maybe we could put pins in. Million Dollar Baby, Slapshot, League of Their Own, Ali the Wrestler, Pride of the Yankees. Foxcatcher, Bull Durham. Is Foxcatcher the one with... Annie Tatum, Ma- Steve Carell. Steve Carell, yeah. About wrestling? Yeah, I've never actually watched that. I've seen but it. But I've, me- I've wanted to watch it multiple times and I, just haven't done it. It's a pretty tense and uncomfortable movie. I mean, I would not call it a sports movie. So they actually have Rocky at number three on this list, and then they have Raging Bull, which I don't think... It- and then they have Hoop Dreams, which is a documentary. So I think Raging Bull, say what you want about it, it's not really doing the same thing. It's not a movie about... So the argument, so I don't care about any of the other movies on this list 
being in this in this conversation except for Hoosiers. And okay, Breaking Away is a good movie. What's the other one you wanted to put a pin in? Field mm. of Dreams or something? Breaking Away and Field of Dreams. Here, let me, this is the, I just made a list of <laughs> the things that I think we have to at least reject. Field of Dreams, Breaking Away, Chariots of Fire, and Rocky. And Hoosiers, sorry. Okay, so I just, I think that there's nothing about any of those other movies that Rocky doesn't do better except that what Hoosiers does is it tells a father story and a team story. And it's, as far as a sportsman, I mean, Field of Dreams is a bizarre- Supernatural dad. Supernatural fantasy dad movie. Doesn't even, not really a big game movie. Yeah. Maybe what we're really talking about is the genre of the big game movie. So take out Field of Dreams, that just leaves Breaking Away, Chariot of Fire, Hoosiers, Rocky. Okay, so those movies, so Chariot of Fire and Breaking Away, I actually think- they all accomplish the same sorts of things, and I think that Rocky does it better. I, maybe somebody is going to argue that Chariots of Fire is just too much of a classic. and It feels like such a different movie. But I think that there's that movie, and then there's Hoosiers, which is probably the representative father figure, team, discipline, put everybody in check, rally the troops kind of a movie. And I don't know that... I don't know. Maybe we should just watch it sometime. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to do Hoosier. We'll probably have to do all four of these. Yeah. I mean, I, I Breaking Away is fine. I think it's a quirky, fun little character drama thing. It's not even close. It's not in the same ballpark. Yeah, and, uh, just know, very sweet and likable. It's sweet. I love Breaking Away. It's just not. No, it's not the same. It's not the same. I think Chariots of Fire is worth <laughs> considering. Chariots of Fire is very historical. It's maybe a little bit homeworky, but it's a great movie. I mean, I love Chariots of Fire, and those guys are amazing and it's an interesting story and yeah. the religious angle is interesting too if i was in the right mood i might say i might try and fight for chariots of fire but for me it's easy i think rocky is the winner yeah maybe as someone who doesn't care that much about sports boxing is just more fun to get into the sort of typology of than basketball like i, I don't even know what i'm watching even with fake basketball i don't know what i'm watching half the time like okay i mean i do like they're throwing right. a ball trying to get through a hoop but it's like not nearly as doesn't have the power and potency of boxing. In well, there are a couple of places you could grow up where Hoosiers just might have to rank higher for you culturally. Indiana is one of them right. that, that you're from here. So, but there's something so small town about Hoosiers, which is delightful. It's not something that I relate to. That I didn't grow up in that part of Indiana. Like I didn't actually grow up in the Hoosiersy feeling. To me, I Bloomington is an, is a university town. It just doesn't have the same feeling. At least that, that's not how I remember my childhood. I don't know. I, I just think Rocky's better. Like I, I like Hoosiers. I like fatherhood movies, which is what Hoosiers is. And that's what gives it the edge, maybe. Or at least puts it in the discussion of getting the edge. But It's not nearly as well-crafted of a movie. It's yeah, just not, I like, just don't like, not, like That's my memory. Gene Hackman's romance is pretty lame, as I recall. I mean, it's fine, but it's... It doesn't. Dennis Hopper is fun, but who cares? I mean, okay, that's not true. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. It's just... No, Rocky's in a class of its own, though. These but... guys, if, I guess it's like, it's just the inherent drama of it. Like, if Rocky, yeah, we could say it's about self-respect and all that, but also, this guy stands a real chance at escaping one kind of bad life into a better... Like, Rocky really has something to gain or lose, and so do the Hoosiers kids, but also, it's a bunch of white boys... In Indiana, they're going to be fine. They can go do something else. Like, it does not have the inherent, like, mythological weight of Rocky. Like, if they lose, it will suck. But it won't ruin their lives. 
It's another based on a true story. Right. Huh. Uh, nothing about the uh, about Norman Dale is based on a true story. I saw a movie with Kevin Costner as a running coach. It was a Disney movie based on a true story, coaching these Hispanic kids in California. People love that movie. I've had so many people say, hey, have you caught up with this? And I'm like, no, why would I watch that? And they're like, it's, it's great. My wife wanted to watch I've it. I was cool like- runnings. Oh, I hate cool running. Hate but this, cool running. this movie, I really, I liked a lot. I liked a lot. The Kevin Costner movie. I mean, you could say it's nothing special. It's big, cheesy melodrama. But man, Kevin Costner brings truly great dad energy. Can we just take a minute, though, to and talk about the fact that Cool Running sucks? And everybody oh, what likes, a terrible like, movie. Why did I even watch that an, as a it's kid? It's just a 90s experience. Yeah, every, like, yeah all, I know, all I know. These but it's so freaking bad. Freaking millennials are like, I have a fond memory of this thing. We should watch Cool Runnings. And the, the new- great Disney director, yeah, John Turtletop, responsible John- for so many popular and bad movies. The, the national- It's incredible. Uh, guy, national re- treasure, yes. Midas in reverse. You can take a great idea and turn it into lead. Assuming lead's not valuable. <laughs> He's made so metaphor. many bad and popular movies. It's incredible. Yeah. He keeps making them. Oh, we're from Jamaica, man. We are... Cre- I think you mean Mon. <laughs> Mon? Yeah, we do funny things unexpected by corporate white people. <laughs> and then you read the real story and it's like they, their Bob's blood sled went an inch and nothing inspirational happened. And ah, cool runnings. More like fool runnings. <laughs> Cool Gunnings. I don't know. There's nothing there. Is there anything <laughs> no, there? No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, Cool Running sucks. Sorry. I know that might be the second most controversial opinion on this podcast after Dune. Probably. Um, Rocky. Ben, how many boxing gloves? Turtles? Yeah, how many turtles out of 15 for, for the for the 15 rounds? 15. 15 turtles for Rocky. Yeah. Jake, same question. 15. I will do. <laughs> I was gonna... No, but I'll give 15 turtles. I was going to try and be funny or dock it at some turtles just to be controversial, but it's Rocky. What are you going to do? He's Rocky. He's a great guy. Try to get that girl not to, to be a, a lady of the night. He's a nice guy. He's got turtles. We all like Rocky. He says, hey, he says yo, Adrian. Remember the part where he says, yo, Adrian? I remember that. Yeah. So you got to love Rocky. He's a 15 turtle guy. He's actually a two turtle guy, but turtles are indicating his quality level. Then he's a 15 turtle guy. (sighs) I'm glad we talked about this. We'll have to check. I don't know if we're going to do like a whole episode on Rocky 2. I imagine we'd end up repeating a bunch of stuff and saying, the making of this movie was way less interesting. I guess Ben (laughs) can do his pugilism history all over again. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. Rocky. All right, we're done. Go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Be part of the podcast. Until next time. I don't know. <laughs> I can think of one line you can say. Yo, Adrian. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>